With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. Special Operations, Covert Ops, Espionage, The Team House, with your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey folks, this is The Team House. I'm Jack Murphy, here with co-host Dave Park. We're live here on, what is this, episode 94? Uh, our guest today is Jessica Donati. She is the author of Eagle Down. She is also a correspondent with the Wall Street Journal, currently covering the State Department. Correct. And uh, this book is all about uh, her reporting that she did from Afghanistan, sort of in the, the tail end of the war, largely covering Special Forces missions. Um, and Jessica, the first question we always ask our guests is what their origin story is. So we'd like, first off, like to start hearing a little bit about you, where you're from, how you found your way into journalism, and eventually to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm from Italy. Uh, I came from an unusual family. Um, my mom was my dad's third wife, and so I'm one of eight kids. Um, and so people say that sometimes, you know, you end up in these places because you want to escape from something. So I don't know if that was <laughs> me or not, <laughs> but... Uh, I always was interested in journalism, and um, when I got to university, um, it was uh, it, it was um, something that I, that I tried to get into. I studied economics, um, and uh, because my father didn't want me to do journalism, and uh, I ended up at Bloomberg um, because a real job. <laughs> I ended up at Bloomberg because they promised me a job on the newsroom floor eventually, but I ended up being an analyst, and it was very miserable. And the only reason I applied there in the first place was because um, the application process was just uploading your CV, and everything else took a long time, and my grades weren't good enough. So why uh, why didn't your dad want you to be a journalist? He thought it wasn't a real job. Um, he was born in the 20s, and so he was in his mid-60s by the time he had me, and he came from a sort of poor, hard-working background where the only thing that was worthwhile was medicine or law. Right. And, um, and I wasn't interested in either of those things, nor would I have probably succeeded in either of those things. And so um, I ended up doing economics because I was okay at maths, and he didn't really know what that was, and it sounded plausible enough. <laughs> but uh, as soon as I could, I went straight into, into journalism and... Um, Coming from coming from Italy, I had a um, 
some advantage working with a, a lo with um, international newspapers there, uh -huh. speaking the language and being from there. So I started out working as a news assistant at the New York Times, where I'd basically make calls and do interviews and then send them to the real correspondents, and I would get like a tag in the paper. Um, but uh, I wasn't making any money, and I was still I was living with my dad, which wasn't great because um, he was bad tempered, <laughs> and you know, well into his eighties <laughs> by then. Um, and I, I had a brother who um, I hope he probably will watch this at some point. So I'm not going to say anything about him. <laughs> <laughs> He's a little crazy, but anyway, we'll I put went that back on to Patreon <laughs> for later. I'll be on behind a paywall here. <laughs> just between us three, yeah. no yeah. one else yeah. is ever going to see us. this. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. So, uh, so I went back to the UK, and then I got a really exciting job at a magazine called Argus Media, which you've never heard of. And my job um, was covering uh, British gas and prices, and it was like a trade magazine. And my boss hated me the day I started, I don't know why, and so for six months I wasn't allowed to write anything. And I was sure I would be fired, except that I was rescued by the power team because I spoke French, uh, which I had learned at school in Italy. It's very close to Italian. And so my job was to call um, French nuclear power stations. And I would call, there's like 17 of them, if I remember, with different things. And yeah, anyway, you would call, you'd listen to the recorded message. If one was off, you'd be able to calculate what the uh, amount of nuclear power was available. You'd write a story saying there's this much, oh, wow. you know, like a 200-word story. It was super, super boring. Yeah. And... Um, and uh, and that would be your story, and so that's what I did. And and that you did that. So did you do that every day? Did you call them all every day? That's what I did every day. That was my only work? job. Wow. <laughs> but I, I also actually I covered German power too, which involved like well, I, no, I stood in doing German power. That was covering like wind farms. So sometimes I got into like how windy it was in Germany. Yeah. And that was like a hundred word story. <laughs> I had like a, a big break where I got to interview like an Italian oil uh, trader, um, and I think. I think I got to go to Milan for that. That was like exciting, but that was basically yeah. my life for a year. Reuters uh, were looking for a, a gasoline and naphtha reporter, which very again very dry. And um, my boss uh, was offered the job, and he declined it because I don't think they were paying him enough money. And so I got the job instead. And that was the beginning of 2011. And um, that was when the Arab Spring um, started. And I was just covering, you know, gasoline. But being from Italy, um, Libya was a huge um, it was a huge deal for Italy. They were getting a quarter of their um, electricity needs from Libya. And Italian oil companies were heavily invested. And so I was able to start, you know, speaking to the Italian oil companies. And because you're Italian, they trust you or they, you know, they want to, you know, they want to tell you what's going on. And so they were like doing deals with Gaddafi, uh, which they weren't supposed to do. It right. was actually sanctioned. And so. <laughs> no, come on. <laughs> that was the, the it, Italians. And so. Um, so at a certain point, Reuters were like, we need people to help us cover Libya. All of our um, war correspondents have burned out. Does anybody want to join? And I was so insignificant at Reuters, they didn't even get the email, but somebody else told me about it, and so I put up my hand. And they said, okay, well, um, sure, like, you know, we'll send you through hostile environment training, and, you know, off you go to Libya. And uh, I had never thought of doing any kind of war journalism. I thought it was insane. I had no interest in war reporting at all. But I had been covering Libya super closely because, because it, as an Italian, you feel close to the country. Like, there's, you know, the, our president's always doing, like, deals with Gaddafi. And so 
it was something that I felt invested in just personally. And so they gave me um, $5,000 and uh, a ticket to Tunisia, which is not Libya, <laughs> and some vague instructions to meet up with so-and-so and then, like, get across the border. <laughs> so from being, like, an idiot, like, 26-year-old with, like, zero war reporting experience or understanding, I found myself, you know, like, in a in a car where one Libyan gang was going to sort of smuggle us over into um, Libya, uh, where the war was sort of full, um, like, full blast and um, Gaddafi, Tripoli had just fallen. And so that was my into war reporting. Wow. And what did you make of it when you you show up in Tunisia? You Were the people you linked up with other journalists? Mm -hmm. They were other other um, Reuters journalists. And yeah. then... Um, and then they somebody had already established this connection with oh, us. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was I mean it was a well established route which a lot of media organizations were using. Um the problem was the Libyan gangs that were managing this were um embattled amongst each other because they were competing for our business. And so we got stuck like in Jerba, I think, on the way because one of the gangs beat up the other taxi driver and my only clue that this was going to that Libya was going to be really bad was that the hotel was really nice and it was the nicest hotel I'd ever stayed at and the buffets were unlimited and I was like wow if they're putting us up here like it must be really bad yeah, like, they want it, yeah. <laughs> I was right was it was it kind of surreal for you like going I and I don't know how much you had traveled like when you were younger and whatnot but I mean going from you know the western world and then crossing the border and driving into Libya especially in, in the sense of what it was was that what was that, that like for you? It was really mind-blowing um, because well, I, had not, I had not really been anywhere much. I mean, I, I grew up in Rome, which is a very quiet city where, you know, I'd walk home every night, you know, as a 16, 17, 18-year-old girl. Nothing ever happened. Um, it was just a very easy place to grow up. And then I went to university in the UK and I hadn't traveled that, no. So it was, yeah, it was, it was insane. Like I remember driving through and we saw like this car that had been like shot up and there were these buildings that were bombed out and it was just, yeah. And I was really scared because <laughs> I had never been in an environment like that, nor had I thought much about it in advance. Sure. And so, you know, the first day you get there to the hotel and you meet up with the, the Corinthian Hotel where all the journalists were on one floor just working out of like tables in the cafe. And um, there's one guy who's in charge of everybody and it's like, there was no security and they were like, okay, just go to the square, there's this protest. And so you go there and there's like all these kids with AKs walking around and like firing in the air and it's super scary if you've never been, like, mm -hmm. I never, be I think I'd never really even seen a gun before. Yeah. Um, and I had no preparation. The fact that I wasn't killed during that or kidnapped during that entire rotation is really just luck because I was really, I did, a, I took a lot of risks and because obviously I wanted to succeed and um, I was just lucky really. Did when you were taking those risks, did you know how much of a risk they were at the time, or was that were you just kind of naive to it all? I think I was pretty naive, and I think also, like at a certain point, especially because Libya was so crazy, you know, you would be like there would be firing in, in, in into the night, like all the time, and you would walk out in the streets, and there'd be like bullet casings in the streets, and they'd be landing on the balcony. And so, at a certain point, you just had to abandon any fear because you couldn't function if you always thought about what would happen to right. you and also I was like younger I didn't have any dependence and so 
it was, you know, it was just myself. And I would call my horrified then boyfriend and it'd be like all this firing in the background and he'd be like, oh my God, like, what are you doing? And it's like, oh, it's fine. It's like, they're not shooting at us. Yeah. You know, it's outgoing and sort of... What did your dad think about this when... Oh, well, he was really old by then. Um, He was well into his, like, 80s. And so his only concern really throughout my entire time in um, Libya and Afghanistan was that I wasn't having children. And... This was his, his his real concern, and he was he had all these theories because he was a psychiatrist um, about why I was in Afghanistan to avoid having children. And the one thing that you would ask is like, he had eight kids, and some of my sisters have like five kids who we never see, doesn't even know the names of. So right. like, why bother me right. with having children? Right. But anyway, that was really his only his only concern at that point. Fascinating. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, it sounds like such a uh, typical thing, like a psychologist would come to there. Like maybe, like you need to analyze yourself a little bit yeah. on, on that one. You're doing this because you don't want to face your real fears, right? Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So, um, so how did I mean? You wise up fairly quickly in that type of environment, right? And are there like people around that are kind of taking you under their wing who who are old hands or? Is I mean, it more doggy dog? I mean, Reuters at the time, I mean, I guess Libya was quite a collegial place to be because everybody was sort of in this life or death situation together. But it wasn't super collegial. And a lot of the time, I mean, I can tell you one example of how like it just wasn't that great was where um, I had to go meet a source at a different hotel and it was nighttime and I called the um, security advisor that we had one for all of uh, all of Tripoli and I said I need to go meet this guy he's like get in a taxi it'll be fine it was not fine <laughs> I got into the taxi and then like in very limited Arabic like I told him I had three kids and whatever to make it sound like more you know like I, that I was more important and anyway he still decided to like make off with me down a highway yeah. and um, I just had this like terrified feeling in my stomach and um, and in my hostile environment training they had told us you know get out before they take you where you're supposed to, where you're supposed to be. So where you're supposed to be kidnapped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they're supposed to help, where they're supposed to hold you. So, um, so like I kind of wrestled him for the wheel, and we crashed into the side of the highway, and I got, and I sort of got out of the car, and I sort of escaped into the darkness, and the security guy came and found me. What I didn't know that entire time was that he had told Reuters officially um, that I had gone off without saying anything, which was not true. And uh, he had luckily said that in the presence of the guy who was in charge of, of the operation. But he didn't tell me, and he didn't tell like anybody else at Reuters, nor did anybody tell my boss then that I, had, that I was missing. So he had absolutely no idea of what wow. was going on. Um, and, you know, when I got back, um, he only told me sort of on the last day, like weeks afterwards, he was like, oh, by the way, you should clear this up with Reuters because they think you went off on your own. <laughs> Which is not like the best thing to hear at the end of like right. a long assignment. For sure. Um, where, I, by the way, I calculated that I was being paid less than some of the drivers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. And I got a huge drivers. pay raise when they yeah. came back, and I was like, mm, maybe I'm being underpaid because I just got a thirty percent pay rise. What? Um, I mean, at what point? Because here's the thing that a lot of people don't know is when you wind up in a situation like that. There, for a lot of people, there's a sense of like denial that they go through, where it's like this is like I'm making a big deal out of nothing, and and to actually to like make a move for the wheel, it, it's more than just you like 
fighting for your life, it's you also overcoming the doubts of, am I overreacting to this exactly. situation? Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was like the first turning and I was like, okay, we just missed the first turning. And it's like the second turning. It's like, I think, you know, I'm just going to, you know, it's fine. Like, and then, you know, when he took the highway, like going off like way out of the city, you know, I was like, what's, oh, what's he no. telling you? Like, oh, this is the shortcut. Don't worry about <laughs> oh, it. He was just ignoring me. I was like, you missed the turning. And he was just like, yeah. you know, yeah. No, I, I understand. I was in a similar situation in Morocco and, and like the whole time I was, I was like, am I going to do this? Because, am I, like, am I just overreacting to this? Am I just making things up with my brain? How you did know? it end? Yeah. It, uh, I, <laughs> I was, I got out of the taxi. Mm, okay. Well, yeah, I got out of the taxi. It took me where I wanted I, to go. I, I've, I've, <laughs> thankfully, I've never experienced that, despite some of the dumb things I did. But I, I had a, a friend of mine had something like that happen in her bill, where um, three guys, one of them with a pistol, um, they started like taking him off, and uh, he actually grabbed one of them, pulled the knife on the guy's throat, and was like, "Hey, uh, that's what I did." Wow. I mean, <laughs> you know, and that's the thing is that you know this is before nine nine eleven. You know, you I, you carried spider coats everywhere you went. You know, you could fly with them. You know, little spider coat folding knives, and just always had one. And then, um, yeah, taxi was. I was trying to go to the intercon or whatever, and he yeah. went a completely different way. And guys, that you know, down at this end of the street and it's like i'm like this is not right and you go you like there's a lot of doubt there's a lot of in like am i just being a drama queen right now yeah definitely yeah yeah you're fighting was- for the wheel like you're doing something that would be you know criminal in a way or, or, or in a normal situation uh, yeah. right or, or a huge risk to you yeah and you know yeah there's that hmm yeah is this really happening there was definitely that. Yeah. And then how long, like, did you call the security guy? How did, how did you... Yeah, I called him. Um, I didn't really know where I was. Couldn't read any um, Arabic um, at the time. So I just, you know, he was like, find a landmark. So I did. And I just, like, went down to the sea and I waited by, like, some specific building. And eventually he came by and found me. Were you worried about the taxi driver, like, doubling back around and trying to find No, him? because there was a lot of traffic coming out. And so he just kind of thing, and the door swung, and it was just one guy. And I think it was probably just, like, a crime of opportunity where he was like, oh, there's a girl in my cab. Right. Like, I can probably get away with this. Right. And so he just made off with me. Um, and then, like, what I was more worried about was that there were all these, like, truckloads of rebel fighters from all these different groups driving around. And so, like, me wandering on my own on the highway, like, one group, like, stopped. And I didn't stop to find out if they were, like, waiting, coming to help me or, like, right. make my problem even worse. Right. So I get, just, get like, Getting the ran. technical. We're fighting the revolution here, Jessica. <laughs> yeah, right, right. yeah, so I just ran. I just stayed in the dark shadows and just, like, ran until I could, like, you know, hid until, like, I could see the guy. And he was, you know, like, you know, tall white security dude. So he was, you know, he came out looking for me and I was there and, and that was it. But no, nobody... Nobody told me that I had like got myself into trouble um, because they thought I had gone off on my own, which I would never have done, even though I did a lot of stupid things. Right. And and how did did that have any kind of effect? Like, were you nervous about going going to your next meeting at the next hotel or anything like that? I mean, I, I was, I think, just like a little bit in denial afterwards. Like, I went to my meeting as planned, a little bit late, and I was like, you no know, big deal. you know, like an hour late or so, <laughs> and I was like, hey, like this just happened. The guy was like, uh, you should go home. Like, I was like, no, no, I'm totally fine. Yeah. And then, um, you know, months later, I was in a in a taxi with my still then boyfriend. Uh, despite everything I was putting him through, and uh, I just it was dark, and it was a kind of 
um you know country road and i got really scared i just like had a panic attack because because of you know taxi and even though it was totally illogical and then um i started to have issues getting into ca- cabs with people that i didn't know yeah and i have to say to this day like even with ubers i'm like you know looking at the map and like looking at the person and like trying to figure out like what i would do and if like god forbid they lock the, the all of the doors like oh blood pressure like that yeah yeah interesting so what the rest of the time so you went to that meeting um but you didn't you just kind of like shoved it down like all like all good operational people do you just shove it down so you can keep doing your job but like meetings after that like maybe a little bit of nervousness but you still kind of yeah i mean i got through i mean i just kind of really just um pretty much forgot about it um you know it was just like this crazy story a lot of people um the western world kind of shut down and go i send me home I mean, that was the thing, like, I mean, it, uh, the, I think Libya was like a test for a lot of journalists that went across. There were a lot of people mm-hmm. who had never before aspired to be war correspondents or war correspondents, as you would say. And so some, there was one guy in particular who was just so horrified by everything that he saw that I don't think he ever recovered from yeah. his Libya experience and nor did he care to repeat it. But when I came back from Libya... I was really, I mean, going back to my really boring job, speaking to, like, gasoline and naphtha traders about the prices of barges in Rotterdam, and I was like, this is really dull. Yeah, Um, right, right. You'd had had your big break, and there's no turning back. I wanted to do more, and so I asked to go to Iraq, and I was already doing more, like, bigger picture stuff on, like, Iraq and the oil war, and they were like, oh, well, you know, we don't need anyone in Iraq, but you could go to Afghanistan instead. We need people there. And I had, I was like, is the war still going on in Afghanistan? Because, like, I remember the invasion in high school, but I think that's the last time I thought about it pretty much. Yeah. And what year was this about? Um, this would have been 2012. Okay. So about 10, uh, 11 years, 10 years into, ago. Yeah. 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 Nearly 10, 10 years, years ago. Yeah. Um, how long did you spend in Libya? Um, I was there for two months. For two and months. then I uh, went to Afghanistan in 2012. Okay. And then I came back again to Libya in 2013. Because the bureau chief was getting married, and so I went in to run the bureau for a while. And what, what was your trip like to Afghanistan? How, how did it, how was it the same as Libya, and then how did it differ from Libya? I mean, I was much more afraid of going to Afghanistan than going to Libya for some reason. Um, I think just the, the fact that it was such an organized war in my head and that I had seen, once I obviously started, we did reading about it, it seemed really awful. I was really scared and I had like a last dinner with my friends, like goodbye forever kind of thing, you know. And Kabul was the opposite. Like, I mean, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the like more seasoned war correspondents, they were like, beware of the parties in Kabul, the parties are really wild, don't drink too much kind of thing. And so, it, but I didn't take them seriously. And then obviously when I got to Kabul, like it was just, party town in 2012 like there were these like huge wild parties at embassies and um you know there was a bit of everything like there was like there was a bit of war but there was also like a lot of fun so to speak and Mm -hmm. you didn't feel in danger the same way because in tripoli like and in misrata like where where i went as well like you could never you never knew where the like lines were you never knew who was who they were changing all the time there was it wasn't organized whereas like Afghanistan 2012 it was super organized like you knew like you had and it was mind-blowing like you had the Italians in Herat you had the Germans in Mazar Mm -hmm. you had every nationality in a different part it was like it was like a theater and so um and all choreographed and so you never felt so um you didn't feel afraid in the same way although they had these like random suicide attacks even back then like they were not as often as they then became right close 
obviously like it changed really fast once the US had drawn down. When, when you were, and you speak to Libya a little bit, but when you were in Afghanistan, like how did you generate stories? Did somebody, would somebody tell you, hey, these are the things that we have leads on or would you develop your own leads? Oh no, yeah, you were totally sort of independent pretty much. Like you were left to do whatever you wanted in terms of like the features and stuff. Obviously if there was a breaking news story like, I don't know, like an explosion or something or, um, you know, Mullah Omar is revealed to be dead. Um, those stories were sort of the bigger the bigger stories that then everyone would get involved in and then people higher up would have an opinion about what we should focus on. You know, or that would happen with your features where you do a feature about like something happening in Bamiyan and someone would say, oh, but I remember the Buddhas, this should be about the Buddhas. And it's like, it's got yeah. nothing to do with the Buddhas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that actually leads me into something else I wanted to ask you about was, uh, it's not necessarily in your book so much, but... Uh, we had talked before about how you had wanted to do uh, embeds with different military units, and you just kept getting denied and getting denied. They wouldn't let you do that. So you ended up embedding with Afghan units. Yeah. And you shared some of those pictures with me of oh, yeah. you wearing a burqa, riding around <laughs> the back of a pickup truck. And I was, I was just wondering if you could tell us about that experience, um, how you get got into that. Oh, well, I mean, that was the just trying to, I mean, the war really changed. And so from uh, from things being sort of all organized under a certain international force, it was all kind of, you had no other way to find out what was going on under mm -hmm. the, with the Afghans. And so um, I can't remember which was the first one that we did, but we really wanted to find out what was going on in, in a certain area. Um, I mean, I, I don't know, if one example would be, say, like Shindand. Um, and so... The only way to get there was to just rely on the on the Afghans, and so we had it was all down to obviously like the Afghan journalist that we worked with. We had a guy um, Habib, and he was amazing. Like he knew the MOD really well. He he had the uh, spokesman like you know whose buddies with the guy. The guy would like come drink vodka with us, you know, because it's a good old from the Russian times. Right. Um, and so, and we would get our embed papers and then you would basically like just figure out how to get to that Afghan base. So, and the, the bases were often really far flung. So, oh, in the case of Shindand, like we flew to Herat on an Afghan flight. And then, um, because I had got a tip from someone in the intel agency in Kabul that the Afghan, um, intel agency was paying the Taliban a splinter Taliban group to, to like fight the main group. And this was part of like this bizarre plan where they would fund one faction of the Taliban to fight the other, not thinking about what happens when that faction decides that they like them after all, right, right. you know? So this was our like story. And these two like Afghan commanders just came to the airport to pick us up. And they were like, you know, and we had no idea that they were really who they, who they said they were. They just appeared in like a, in a beat up Corolla. And we drove through like from Herat down to Shindan, which is like a super, dangerous district in Herat which is mostly Taliban controlled and we just like drove there at breakneck speed and when we would go through like these marshy areas the guys would like just sit down and have their like you know pistol wherever it was like hanging outside the window you know we stopped to check on this one group of Afghan commanders that were stationed in some other like godforsaken district where they were living in really miserable conditions um you know, like in this one little fort where they, you know, they were like these guys could come under attack any time, and they were telling, they would tell these guys about the tips that they'd received about how they were going to come under attack, and then you would just like basically hang out with them. And it was possible because my my um Af the Afghan journalist that I worked with was really great. Like he he, I knew that he would look after me, and that like nothing bad would happen to me 
while he was around. And he was this, I mean, when we would be traveling around, we would get stopped by the police because they would think he was Taliban. He's the guy in the photos, one of the photos that you oh, said. Oh, yeah, he looks like a big, mean, Wahhabi-looking yeah, guy. he's got, like, long hair right, right. and, like, the, the thing. And that picture that we took was funny because, you know, we were, like, pretending that we were traveling along as, like, a very kind of conservative <laughs> Afghan couple. Um, so, so, so he was, I mean, he was really great. And he was not conservative at all. I mean, uh, now he's since left the Wall Street Journal and he runs a bar in Kabul uh, and a steak restaurant. Now, when when you would travel uh, outside, you know, when you would travel like in in this, would you wear like uh, a hijab? Oh, a burqa, for sure. Yeah, a burqa, yeah. When we were leaving, I mean, in Kabul, as soon as you leave out towards Nangahar, like, I mean, you don't have to, or even down to Logar, and I think about this like any direction outside of Kabul, like, it's very, it gets kind of pockets of, 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 of Taliban and especially, I mean, now it's like completely surrounded, but yeah, it would not be safe to go out in anything less than a burqa right. because mm-hmm. no woman is uncovered there. Right. But the burqa is also, I mean, it's a blessing in disguise for a foreign journalist because you can just sit under it and you can drive anywhere pretty much. No yeah. one's going to bother you. They might bother your driver. Right. But with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I don't think that I ever got um, I ever got bothered. There was one time in Kandahar where I was traveling, but with a, an American journalist. So he was clearly not Afghan, um, and we got stopped at a police mm-hmm. checkpoint. And it was like you know a very sketchy police checkpoint, and it was pouring with rain, and um, the guy would not let us go, and we were in we were in like big trouble. And he made me take off my burger, right. which felt like the most insane violation, and he would not let us leave until. Um, until like you know, someone very high up at the journal had called like the MOD to like filter it down to like this guy and be like, "Don't kill those reporters!" Or wow. don't, you know, it uh, wasn't. It was really scary. Did but, he have yeah. you removed to see if you're a Westerner and, and like it, like? I don't think so. No. I think it was just like uh, it was basically like you know, like if like a Western man like told you to like take your top off or something. Because like yeah. the way that he looked at me, he I just felt like a you know like a little sheep with like a big wolf um you know like it was really it was really um unpleasant but apart from that like i never really had any issues with the with the burqa and um the police truck photo is we were driving from the the base because in the kunduz they had the the actual base where the commanders were was sort of at the top then you had to drive a while to get to the end of the base to get out so the police truck was giving us a lift mm-hmm. to our Corolla, which was waiting to just drive us in town where we were going to do our own thing in the city for the day. So, I mean, I was, yeah, I was in the burqa just as, as, a, as a joke before we really got into the Corolla. So then how did you start, uh, as you're doing this, these, these undercover reporting trips in, in burqa, uh, start coming into contact with U.S. special forces and got, started to lead you into, you know, what became the genesis for this book? Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. 
It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. I mean, it was... It was, um, I mean, hard to say, like back in 2015, um, when I was still at Reuters, uh, somebody in Special Forces thought it'd be a good idea to take me around to see all the ODAs, to see the handoff between com um, ODAs and commandos, and it was supposed to show how they were being trained and stuff. So I got to meet a lot of ODAs around the, um, around the country, um, and um, one of the guys in Helmand, um, when we were like in the in the back of this truck, he like gave me his email address. And um, it was the team that ended up having a lot of a lot of problems and they're in the book. And so I think that he wanted like some kind of like life insurance. <laughs> if something happened, he like wanted to know a journalist. <laughs> and, uh, you know, talking to, to him and like in, so that was one trip really in Helmand, like hearing about the crazy stuff because um, I was in touch with him and, he would talk about like the things that had happened and but not in like full detail and but I could tell that something was really wrong Bothering and how this a team had got fired and like who had ever heard of an ODA getting fired and like, unless they had committed some kind of like mass murder there. Right. Which we hadn't heard about. It was like something really weird was going on. And going up to Kunduz where like it was just the the state of things where we embedded with the commanders in Kunduz and we got there and we arrived, me and Habib, the uh, Taliban looking like guy and a photographer. And we like, you know, walk into this office and no one is very happy to see us. There's like the head, the Afghan commander uh, head who we give our embed papers to. He did not want to stay in there and he was super corrupt. And the, you know, the ODA captains like looking at us like, how did you even get here? Because like Kunduz had just fallen and we had like, you know, driven driven into Kunduz from Badakhshan. So we had driven through like a whole bunch of Taliban areas to get there. And they were like, couldn't believe that we'd made it. And the ODA guy was like, you know, you want to stay on the Afghan base? He's like, I don't think that's a good idea. Like, come and stay on our base. And we were like, sure, this is much better. Like, why would we stay on the Afghan base where there's like no food, barely any running water? And um, I really couldn't walk around the base on my own at all because it just wasn't safe. Yeah. And, and so they invited us. And we have rippets. You had really yeah. <laughs> more than that. Just like that's where I had my first. Um, that they have like this uh, sort of hot dog thing on a stick. I never even a seen corn it. Dog. Like a corn yeah. dog. Yeah, like neither me nor, nor any of them had seen it. We're like, what is this thing? And it's like all this like weird American food. And we had like hot showers. It was the best. Like a single tear rolls down your cheek. <laughs> so, uh, you start you start humming the national anthem. For, but it didn't last though. For our viewers and listeners who aren't super familiar with military terminology and ODA is an operational team, uh, detachment operational alpha, detachment alpha, uh, it, they're green beret special forces. So, mm. um, yeah. So we had mm. gone there because, um, the whole, the whole idea that had formed at that point that we knew that we was clear to us was that Afghan cities were falling. They would send in green berets attached to Afghan commanders to recapture the city. And then they would say the Afghans did it themselves. And like this just seemed to be a horribly um, like destructive line of thinking because you're it's just you're just making it look like the Afghans are standing on their own and it's just it, oh man you just shot down the entire idea of special forces <laughs> in like one sentence just killed it well I mean if 
you could it was just the way that like back in dc you know the, the no one is the policies were just insane because they're like oh well you know the afghans and you're like the only reason the country hasn't right, completely right. collapsed is because you're sending in um these, we're, we're believing our own propaganda yeah, yeah and and the green berets were as um as disillusioned if not more disillusioned than than we were about mm -hmm. it because they're going in and they're seeing their guys die in the same places year after year they're fighting for the same places and they're dealing with the same problems so the the ODA in Kunduz who had to recapture the city the second time they dusted off the first guy's plans and they're like okay we're going to go back into the city they had all the same problems that the first guys had because no one had fixed them they had their trucks didn't still have the right amount of trucks mm -hmm. they um you know they didn't have maps like it was just you know really really messy and so I, I think that was one of the reasons they eventually got to um you know speak to so many people and put the book together was because there were a lot of guys that felt that there was something seriously wrong with the policy and so was the was the captain uh the first sort of special forces guy you came across or was it the guy that you were telling us about earlier who so there was well he wasn't the only one because i did meet a bunch of other odas and so there were a couple of people that like of guys that i met and that i kept in touch with who were you know who would occasionally show up in Kabul who were involved in like there was i mean there were a lot, there were a few well i'm curious mm -hmm. about like your initial contact with them like what did you think i mean you see these bearded guys you know <laughs> barrel chested freedom fighters yeah, exactly bearded bar barrel chested freedom fighters you know i mean i imagine that you probably don't know who they are or what they're doing yeah i don't think i really had much of an idea other than um you know that they, i mean there's always like a certain amount of fascination with like the special forces guys especially if you spend a lot of times with afghans like American special forces like you know mystical sort of thing um, and so I mean meeting them as well because as a journalist it was so hard to do it was always quite mm -hmm. um, exciting to be able to like actually talk to someone and ask you know what do you really think about it yeah um, but um, that time in Kunduz we only really got to spend one night on the base because then they obviously reported that these journalists had showed up in Kunduz and they had like saved them from the Afghan base and the guys in Kabul were like hell no <laughs> like get those journalists out so we were like evicted from the base the next day the, the ODA captain was super apologetic and he was like I'm sorry there's nothing you do and I talked to like the um the general back in um in Kabul and I was like you know like so many bad things could happen to me on this base I could be raped and I was like you know really dramatic about what could happen and he was like I mean I care it's not my problem and so we like went and stayed on the Afghan base, but the ODA was nice enough to let us continue to eat right. on that side. That didn't prevent me from getting like the worst food poisoning as happened on every trip. And so I spent most of my time like vomiting in between, um, you know, interviews and stuff. It wasn't the best. Um, so I mean, it, and talking to them, obviously, you're like, wow, like they have the same, they see the same problems that we do. Mm -hmm. I remember like one of the guys that we asked on when we were there, we're like, what do you think about? Um, you know, what do you think, how is it working with the Afghans? And one of them was like, they're even more stupid than the Iraqis. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> it was off the record, so they never made it into a story. But, like, that was the kind of, like, feeling right. that you had. And then there was another guy that I met there uh, who had a very dramatic life story. And his theory was that the Americans were keeping the Afghan war going because they want to have a place for Green Berets to practice in for the real war. You know, this is how, like, insane things looked from the ground. They right, couldn't believe right, right. that anyone could actually have put them there to do the mission that they were told to do. They thought, you know, so when you had these conspiracy theories at that level, it wasn't so hard to start to piece it together. Um, for me, uh, I guess, what really I, led me to write the book was meeting Hutch. 
who was the guy when the um, when the Kunduz uh, hospital was bombed the first time. I always wondered, like, the guy that like called in that airstrike, like, how does he live with himself? I, I, I want to get into that because you're a, a significant portion of your book is about the Kunduz mission um, invasion, essentially, and the bombing of the Doctors Without Borders hospital. Um, before we get into that, I was wondering if you could lay out, talk a little bit about kind of the um, that policy insanity that came out of D.C. that you mentioned um, to, to sort of contextualize what we're going to talk about, what was going on during the Obama administration during this time frame in regards to Afghanistan. Yeah, so in 2015, uh, the Obama administration had said the war is going to be ending in two, in two years. <clears throat> we're just training, advising, and assisting the Afghans. We're not in combat anymore. And that was like the mission in line. And in the early months, it was pretty much true. There wasn't a lot of that the, the, that the, um, anyone really did. Um, but things got bad really fast because without air support, the Afghans were fucked. Um, and so uh, it got to sort of September and um, the Taliban toppled the city of Kunduz, which was the, one of the, I think it was like the sixth biggest city. It delivered a huge shock to everybody not just in Kabul, but also in D.C. They're like, well, the Taliban have taken, like, an entire city. Uh, and it wasn't just the city, because as soon as the Afghans in neighboring districts, provinces, were like, what well, Kunduz has fallen, they were like, hell no, we're not fighting. And so they right. started to look at the possibility that the entire Northeast would collapse just in a matter of days. And so they had this choice. Do we, you know, let it fall and just, you know give up and leave because there's nothing we can do or do we stand and try and like make something of this and so the argument in the Obama administration at that time won out and so they ended up uh they ended up sending in these green berets in the green berets go in they're like we've got it and you know worry we're going to fix this and uh, they did and it would have gone well and no one would have known anything really about the u.s role except that on the fourth or fifth night of the um, mission um, they ended up calling in an airstrike on uh, Doctors Without Borders Hospital, and uh, they ended up killing um, 42 people, mostly doctors and patients, and it was a terrible disaster. Um, and, I mean, at the time in the press, I mean, this was a huge deal. Um, people are saying this is a war crime, um, and there are all sorts of different, I mean, I, it, it certainly doesn't help when the United States government changes their story a bunch of times. Um could you talk to us a little bit about what really happened? Because you interviewed a lot of people, that both in the hospital and the SF team on the ground, and you really did a lot of work piecing together how this happened. I mean, I think the most... They, they, and this, it was investigated afterwards, and they published a heavily redacted report. And I think that even... Even with all that and everything that I was able to uncover, I think the full story is still not entirely known um, because there's no... What happened was the um, Afghan commanders were part of the American um, integral defense, so they could call in air support to protect themselves because, obviously, if they didn't have air support, then the Taliban threat would go onto the team inside. Mm -hmm. And so they were out. They called for... they they um, Hutch, who's the, who was the commander on the ground... Um, they hear gunfire, they think it's the Afghans who are calling for help, they talk to the interpreter, the interpreter can't get through to them, and they're like, are our guys under fire? And then after a bit, the interpreter is like, they're calling for air support, so Hutch, you know, through his comms guy, like, speaks to the aircraft, and they're like, you're good to, like, fire on the building and on the people mm -hmm. who are escaping from the building. And uh, he had no idea, obviously, that the um, that the AC-130 had locked onto the hospital and it had locked onto the wrong target. Mm -hmm. So 
The GPS coordinates that he had given for the first attack, for the first of, of two missions that the commanders were doing, um, was not the hospital, but a relatively nearby intelligence agency building. And so when the AC-130 um, plotted the GPS coordinates, it didn't plot to the building, it plotted to, it plotted to an empty field because there had been an air to surface, a surface-to-air missile fired that night for like the first in years. And so it had thrown them off course, they were flying higher, all of their protocols were kind of out the window. And so they looked down, they don't see anything, just an empty field. And they saw a T-shaped building, which had been given to them as a physical description of their target. Now the um, intelligence agency building was hexagonal shaped, not T-shaped. So um, one question that has never been answered, and I was unable to answer really, is why did the Afghan commanders pass along the description of the T-shaped building? Mm -hmm. um, did they? One possibility is that they actually planned to attack the hospital that night after the NDS um, building because it was well known the Afghan government hated the hospital because they treated Taliban there. And so, and they had previously raided it, so not implausible, given that many of them believed that Taliban were inside, mm -hmm. that, um, that that the hospital was a legitimate target. Um, but the GPS coordinates effectively were not the ones of the hospital. So, so who knows? Uh, real quick, was the call for fire, uh, who had eyes on the objective and called out the grid? Was it the Afghans and they passed that on to the, to the ODA? And the ODA called mm. in the airstrike? Right. Or did the ODA have eyes on at all? They didn't, no. And that was one thing that wasn't known at the time, because according to the official line from the U.S. government, the um, Americans were only only using airstrikes to deliver life-saving support to troops on the ground, troops mm -hmm. under fire. But, you know, it was actually a lot fuzzier than that. And the definition of in danger was really much more extensive. And so they could be in danger if Afghans who were protecting them or, you know, outside were in danger. So mm -hmm. it was basically they just kind of it was Washington's spin really to convince journalists in D.C. that they were really not helping the Afghans and they weren't in combat anymore and that Obama had delivered on his promise to end the war. Right. Because the whole thing was about. Um, the, President Obama had said the war is going war is going to end. I'm against forever wars, and he gave this grand speech at the end of 2014, saying this is how modern wars end. Um, you know, no peace agreements, but you know, just training. And so th that was the whole thing. And so this whole effort over the two years up until the 2016 election was to make it look like they weren't fighting. Right, right. Um, this fiction that we have no troops in combat. No troops in combat. Yeah, and then and then so a lot of the rules uh, of engagement that they had were handed down as though they weren't really in combat, mm -hmm. which is problematic because what they actually were doing were like dropping in teams to you know into the middle of a Taliban-controlled village to capture or kill some guy, which was what they'd been doing all along, mm -hmm. or going into a Taliban-controlled city and recapturing that city. Mm -hmm. um, and so, of course, they were in combat, but the rules didn't um, match that reality on the ground. What happened when the Trump administration came in was that the rules were loosened because there was no need to preserve the fiction that we're not in combat anymore. Even though they continued to repeat it, it didn't become so existential to have to right, pretend right. that that's what they were doing. The, I mean, the, the whole thing is wild, and, and you write a, a lot about the aftermath of this um, when this uh, special forces officer, Hutch, I mean, they really, like, persecuted this guy. And, I mean, after they, like, assured him, hey, everything's good, everything's cool, and, like, the stuff they put him through, like, I would have lost my mind. I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I can believe it, but it's still outrageous. 
Yeah, I mean, I always, I was always, because when I covered this, when I was um, covering the events at the time, I obviously had no knowledge of Hutch or even his name initially. And um, I always wondered, you know, who's the guy that like right, called right, this right. in and like, how does he live with himself? And like, what does he think about it? Because even then, like it was clear that there was a lot, there was a lot more problematic than just the guy on the ground made a bad judgment call. Like the whole, the whole thing was insane that you let the city fall because you weren't invested in it. And then you send in a bunch of guys to like fix it, fix it with no, no vehicles with like no, right. no map like no no not enough water like not enough batteries like it was just they didn't have enough time to plan anything and so when things went wrong and it, which they are likely to do if you send in you know a, an ODA into the middle of a heavily populated city like you know and, and you start bombing it like mm -hmm. things are going to something bad's going to happen right and he was blamed for it and yeah <coughs> did you have like a, a, a sort of a predisposed belief or thought about U.S. military involvement there, about special operations? Like, were there things that you learned or you changed your mind about or things that just reinforced what you already felt? I think I became more sympathetic um, because I came at it from, you know, I had I was talking to the hospital every day um, because I was in Kabul and the city fell and you wanted to find out what was going on. And so the Afghan journalists would call Afghan contacts and we would call internationals who were there, which was the MSF hospital, which I had been to. Um, just the, just the previous year, mm -hmm. and so it was very personal because, like, you know, I talked to everyone at the hospital. Mm -hmm. I remembered being there, meeting all the patients, all the doctors, and so it was it was a big shock. And um, you know, I woke up in the morning, and and somebody um, from Kunduz sent me a text message, an Afghan guy saying, you know, they bombed the hospital. And I looked online and there was nothing. And it was because the news didn't come out immediately. And I was like, it's not possible. They couldn't have bombed the hospital. Mm -hmm. And um, and they did, and the story changed, and it was just really frustrating and angering to watch. And most of my time as a journalist in Afghanistan was covering Afghan civilian casualties, mm -hmm. which most of the time media organizations don't even want to cover because there's so many of them. You know, at Reuters, um, and not just Reuters, but I think any news organization, especially now, like if there was only three people dead in, a, in an IED attack... It wasn't worth writing about. It had to be like at least ten. Mm -hmm. uh, this was this was a while back, and a lot of the time you'd be covering like you know, these women were collecting firewood, and you know, U.S. drone mistook them for insurgents, and um, and so they were all killed. And you know, you have these protests, and all these poor Afghan villagers are like parading their bodies in the street, and the American military is like. We have no evidence of civilian casualties, and so I was very, um, I was very bitter about that. And so I think it was really meeting those guys gave me a really different perspective about how it looked from the other side, mm -hmm. about how little information they often had, um, and also like how much they had been through, and how many of them really were invested. I mean, especially for example, Hutch, he has spent so much of his adult life invested in Afghanistan mm -hmm. and really being out with Afghans that, you know, he was emotionally attached to the to the country in a way that I hadn't really understood for American soldiers initially. Yeah, interesting. Um, so how how did you so you start investigating this because you your source reaches out and says they bombed, you know, uh, the MSF, uh, the Doctors Without Borders, Massons Sans Frontier, etc. Um, but how how did you make your way down to that area to meet the people or were you already sort of 
close to it? I mean, I only I heard about Hutch's name uh, just through another like character who was at the cigar club at RS that I would occasionally go to just because it was an entertaining place to be and. Uh, you know, and the the view in sort of amongst these kind of co- uh, contractor types, the type, you know, who've been, you know, contracting in Afghanistan forever and right. they're like super grizzled and they were like, oh, this guy got his scapegoat. He was a great, very promising young officer and they screwed him. And um, that was how I, f- I first heard about him. Um, but I first reached, so someone gave me his email address, but I didn't reach out right away. When I did reach out, it was about a different story um, where... Um, he had been involved in raising this this particular contract. He was a former Green Beret, and he'd been involved in raising a militia in the East to fight Islamic State. And he was trying to get support from American Special Operations, which was his background, to get some air support from them. And he was like, we could do something like the old days, where we partner with you guys, we go kill people out in the field, and you just give us air support. Um, and that thing went really wrong when the militia he was helping to raise ended up decapitating a bunch of people mm-hmm. and putting their heads on sticks. Mm-hmm. I understand. <laughs> were, were, were they ISIS members that they decapitated? I mean, you know, allegedly, but like, it's what is to, even yeah, ISIS in Afghanistan? I'm not saying that as, a, as though it justifies it. <laughs> or but, maybe it would. <laughs> but, well, yeah, and that's the thing is... You know, it some, was actually yeah. a, a tit for tat thing because they had ISIS had done something very nasty to the militia, and so the militia had responded by chopping their heads off, putting them on the road as a warning. Um, and uh, so this guy, who is an American former Green Beret, linked to this militia that had done this atrocity, the U.S. Embassy, and you know they're all like, "Oh my God, let's get away from this guy!" So they cancelled all of his contracts. They like erased his badge. He was wiped out. And so he came to me with, yeah. like, you know, a journalist, because I had been begging him for, like, you know, a year, a couple of years to, like, let me tell his story, because I thought he was a fascinating profile. And so mm-hmm. he only really came to me when he was in trouble himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so that's how I heard about um, Hutch, who was the one of the special forces guys who had been involved with this uh, contractor. And so I emailed Hutch, and I was like, hey, how's it going? I heard that you were supporting a militia that decapitated a bunch of people. <laughs> like, <laughs> any comments uh, for this story, you know, in the Wall Street Journal? And uh, and so I think for him, it was like another potential media disaster, right, right. Uh, which obviously the U.S. military didn't want to talk about, but he went and he got some permission from his PAO to sort of explain what had really happened, that he hadn't actually endorsed this militia, and so that's how I met him. And it was for this other story that I ended up doing about the about the guy, this you know contractor who had been you know it was just like an amazing sort of uh, war story. And um, but over, for me, like meeting Hutch, like it was more I wanted to know about Kunduz and how he like felt about it and how he lived with it. And it was just getting to know him. And eventually, all these other, and along the way, a lot of the other guys that I had a critical mass of people who were willing to sort of tell their story and had some permission at some level. Um, from their PAOs to tell to like to, to tell the story, and that's how it all came together. And, and the PAO is the public affairs office who, who the, a lot of times they'll have to like clear these guys to talk yeah. to you or what what they're allowed to say and stuff. Yeah, I didn't get any any interviews with high level people because yeah. um, so I don't know how the decisions were made. But right. you know, when you were going to like the, the at the at the lower levels that you go directly to sort of the guys and upwards, you would get clearance. But if you went and asked for an interview with say like General Swindell, like that would not happen. Right. And, and you were actually, it sounds like you're becoming pretty entrenched with that community, though, and you probably started, 
you started to know the lingo, like you like there a were bit. there like there's an understanding, right, that starts to happen at a certain mm-hmm. point where you're a civilian, but you're not just a civilian anymore because you you're mm-hmm. getting insight into the community, into their own thoughts about how things are going. A little bit, but a little bit, <laughs> not that much. Wait, wait, was there still sort of an arms? I mean, were people nervous talking to you about like? What you would print and, you know, like... I mean, there were a lot of people, obviously, who didn't talk to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, much more people that, did, that didn't talk to me than people that did. And a lot of the times, people that did talk to me were out of uniform or were moving jobs. And so they... Or, or you know, or for whatever reason felt that they didn't have anything much to lose. I don't know that... Um, Many people were won over by my argument. But what did happen after the book was published that, like, some people reached out and said, oh, I'm sorry that I didn't talk to you. I had this idea that you would be telling the story in this way. But, you know, I see that now I regret that I didn't speak to you because, you know, you were just trying to, you know, do an accurate job. Was that a challenge? I mean, was that a challenge for you? Is there, like, in these communities, is there a basic distrust of journalists and and how they might, what their their motives? (laughs) Really? I've never found that. I mean, yeah, there's definitely a huge amount of distrust. Um, I think, like, over time, you just, um, you know, especially if you get to know, because a lot of the people that I that are in the book, I mean, I knew them for years, and so we had sort of an established kind of friendship before, you know, they, they agreed to go on the record, or we had established some trust. So, for example, with Hutch, I mean... For all the things that we discussed during the interviews that I did when I went to Fort Bragg, you know, there's like one line in the Wall Street Journal story exactly as we agreed. And I think he saw from that that I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't going to deceive him. Twist his words. And other other people did too, like the Hellman team, you know, like I knew what was going on there. And I never wrote about it because for for a newspaper because I was never, um, I was never, it was never agreed. Yeah. So is, is that an important point for you then is to very specifically like denote this is on the record this isn't on the record because i'm sure that as people are telling you stories sometimes they're like well i, I want to tell you this but you can't print this just yeah. so you have context or whatever i mean it's different doing like journal working for like a newspaper where it's for an article versus for a book um but generally the agreement that i had with with that i usually have with people who are sensitive is that it's all off the record unless we agree that it's on. Okay. Um, and so that way you have, like, the fullest picture possible before, you know, and then they may agree to let you use whatever, but I feel more comfortable knowing that I have as much information as possible myself so right. that if I'm using part of it, um, I have the context. Right. Because if somebody is only telling you what's on the record, you may miss some really useful context off record, then you could end up looking stupid or... You may not know, you know, so that, yes, I mean, obviously there were, I mean, all the main characters got to read the book beforehand and point out any mistakes um, and, you know, anything that they weren't comfortable with. And so if, if there was some sort of reason, that reasonable reason to take it out, then obviously I did. Were, whether it was with the book or just general news articles, were there things that people told you? Like, as a friend or in confidence that you're like, oh, I really wish I could write an article about this. I mean, yeah. <laughs> there, there were a lot, and there were a lot of really, um, you know, I mean, just, I mean, some some things that, like, stick out in my mind, which were even long before that, but just going back to Libya, where we, ha- we had, like, a really embattled security contractor who worked for us, and he was tormented because the unit that he'd been with in Iraq had, like, tortured and killed prisoners in front of him. And so he was really haunted by it and the things that he had done. Mm-hmm. And so, 
you know, you do, you get like a lot of, you know, the, you're like, you do get a lot of stories. Um, but yeah, I mean, you only, I mean, for me, like with the book in, initially it was, you know, you're going from person to person, trying to get more information, trying to get them to speak on the record. Um, but then at the end of it, it was just really, you know, I wish I had been able to include all of the stories that I heard and uh, that I was able to publish. I mean, there was one ODA that I talked to quite a bit and they didn't even get into the book because the publisher um, felt that like there were just too many story strands and it was too difficult to follow all the different lines. And so they wanted to like keep a narrow focus. And right. so those guys are like, you know, one paragraph. Um, you know, and it, it happened a lot. So Maybe we can talk about that for the bonus thing. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to also talk about the kind of whiplash from the, um, the, the backlash from the uh, bombing of Doctors Without Borders Hospital. When we get to the, the Eagle Down chapter in your book and how the ROE had not changed per se, but commanders were being even more cautious with airstrikes to the point of absurdity. Mm-hmm. And if you could t- walk us through that operation where uh, McClintock was killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, um, so they were a team that had been swapped in uh, for the team that got fired um, because the team that got fired were resisting going out on these operations because they felt they didn't have air support and they were being told to go into very dangerous areas. And they weren't being supported by their battalion. They weren't being supported by the battalion. They had a very bad relationship with the commandos. We were in their sort of second or third day on the ground the commandos um there was an insider attack um Mm -hmm. that killed two of their of their um support guys uh so they did not have a good relationship with the commandos they didn't trust them out and they had the air support rules were insane where they had to go through this whole long checklist while they're under fire to like say well we've tried this and we've tried that you know we've tried the mortars and that hasn't worked all the while you know so they were resisting going out of these operations. They had this new um, sort of relatively aggressive team came in. And um, those guys, they, they, after in a few weeks, they started to realize that the rules of engagement were really insane. And the captain, Andy, started to feel a little bit hesitant. And he had, um, he had a very strong team, um, team sergeant as well. They started to feel really hesitant about going out on these operations. They were being pushed from the top. And they were, you know they would hear from... They're a major, you know, it comes from the top, you need to go out and do this. And so they resisted this um, major operation to go kill or capture some guy who they thought a sort of mid-level insurgent commander who may or may not be there. They didn't feel the intelligence was particularly strong, but eventually they ran out of excuses and they end up going out on this mission. Um, and uh, they, uh, they get there and um, they're immediately sort of, uh, the cloud cover comes along so they don't have any air support they huddle up onto the um, command and control center and then they come under attack from all sides uh, and uh, it ended up so within the sort of the first hour or so um, one of their guys gets uh, shot in the um, thigh or they, they're worried that it might be like an arterial mm-hmm. um, uh, thing so he's left with the tourniquet and they try to uh, medevac him out uh the first medevac um helicopters come and they sort of try to land and it's all under an incredible amount of fire because this is a taliban controlled village in the middle of marja Mm -hmm. basically and the um helicopter sort of misses its landing and it ends up crashing onto the um command center which is basically like a little mud hut compound surrounded and so this crashed black hawk obviously attracts um insurgents from all over the province where they all come under attack and uh they couldn't get air support to basically um 
fight them off, and they were afraid of getting overrun. The Afghan commanders that they were with, uh, and their com their commander is like, fight the fight, just with whatever organic assets you have, just fight and, and just <laughs> leave them hanging, basically. Yeah, they were left. Um, yeah, in the words of the of the uh, captain, flapping in the out there uh, flapping. Yeah. <laughs> well, now, could they not get? Air support because of the cloud cover or because of the rules no, no, of so engagement. The, the cloud cover had the, it was it was generally like bad sort of um, the whole thing was just sort of bad from the outset. Right. And so everything w was running late because they they couldn't start their clearance operation because of the lack of cloud cover because of the cloud cover. So they had to wait for it to clear up. And as soon as they went out, they came under they came under fire. And so they this one medevac helicopter crashed, and then they try and send in another one, and that doesn't work. And um, the third one gets like, uh, you know, there's a, a female pilot actually, and she gets like shot in the thigh or something while she's trying to fly in. And so they all get turned out and they're like, so they have no med medevac. Um, the captain starts to try and like call in um, airstrikes on the buildings, but the um, pilots won't fire because they can't see a weapon or whatever they're supposed And it was very, very strict. And so while they're saying, look, we're all going to die, right? they're like, we can't see anyone to shoot, and because of um, and because of the strict rules after the MSF, the hospital bombing, right. like every airstrike had to be approved from like a four-star general who's a million miles away from right. them and from the approval chain. So they're just like stuck there. You and know? I also wanted to um, point out uh, what you you had written in the book is that you know at this point because of the technologies we have and drones overhead that you have these commanders back in some mega headquarters watching. And micromanaging in real mm -hmm. time, like mm -hmm. down to the individual soldier, like not in this particular battle necessarily, but in general, like, hey, this soldier should go there. This is like, like they're moving around chess pieces or something. And what was designed to be real time intelligence support for the guys on the ground has become real time oversight from somebody hundreds of miles away trying to dictate to that team what they're supposed to, mm -hmm. what they think they should be doing. Mm -hmm. and, and what you're saying in this case, well, we can't see, we can't see back at the headquarters mm -hmm. gunfire because these guys are inside a home. They're shooting through the windows. Mm -hmm. right. And I'm like, how insane mm -hmm. is that where you have Americans on the ground and they're like, no, that house right there, we're taking fire. We can see the muzzle flashes. And some idiot watching on drone feed is like, no, you're not. We can't see it. Yeah. So... They are stuck, basically. They can't get any air support. They're under attack from all these different buildings. And so they decide, you know, they have to get their friend out who's potentially bleeding to death with this artillery. He's had a tourniquet on all morning, so that's not good. Um, and so they decide to go out and they tried to clear a building in one direction. That didn't work. And so they decide to go out in a different direction. And then they end up being in this um, field where they're sort of going through a drainage ditch. And um, they're just under heavy fire. And as they're walking through, Matt McClintock is shot in the head. Um, and um, he, uh, he's not killed immediately. And they end up having to drag him back. And they still don't get any air support because he's still alive. And uh, it was only when they said that he was killed. And uh, Andy sends this extremely desperate message up to headquarters along the lines of, like, we're all going to die unless can, you guys come and help us. Can, I, I want to read part of what, what Andy wrote, what he, he wrote on his map and read this over the uh, radio. He said, we're pinned down by sniper fire, machine gun fire, and incoming mortar fire from all sides and unable to maneuver. We're running out of ammunition. The aircraft won't fire on buildings because they can't see anyone shooting because combatants are firing from inside roofed structures through murder holes in the walls. When they move between positions, they are leaving the weapons in place knowing we will not fire 
on unarmed combatants. The commandos won't fight. We have one KIA, one WIA, and no quick reaction force coming. And wh- when I read this, I mean, what I thought about that was that this, this captain, Andy, he wrote a Dear John letter. And he wrote a Dear Lon- John letter to America and to the U.S. Army. That's what that actually was. He was saying goodbye. <laughs> yeah. That's insane. It's insane yeah. to me. Yeah, it was, and it was really horrifying to to hear all of the the stories that these guys had, and like it was one of the parts of writing the book that felt like a tremendous responsibility because like who am I? Like I'm not a soldier. I am not American. I have like no background, and you're hearing these like horrendous stories, and you want to do them justice, and you want to tell the story in a way that like is going to make sense and be useful, you know, in the future, so that this mistake isn't made again. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a desperate pitch. And I think and for him it was like, well, you know, if we do all die, they won't be able to say that we didn't warn them, right? right? Um, right. And, but in the end, like, that message somehow got all the way to the top and they um, ended up getting air support. Um, but obviously it was too late because they had already lost um, Matt and um, it was, yeah. And they made him reread that letter Every each time he called in an airstrike. <laughs> Which I think is probably the reason he ended up leaving the leaving the uh, army because he was like, this is kind of the most insane bureaucratic bullshit I've ever yeah. heard. Why, why did they, they made him reread it? So they had the legal basis to drop bombs. See, for every the, single strike of which they did a lot by that point. This, I, I, for, uh, we've talked about ROEs, which are rules of engagement, and I think that what a lot of people don't understand is that they, in a situation like Afghanistan or Iraq or whatever, they can change week to week based on politics. So, who you can shoot, why you can shoot, what kind of investigation is done after you shoot, um, the air support that you can or cannot get, um, you know, like it changes rapidly based on politics. So basically, they had shut these guys out. Yeah, but they were, I mean, what was insane was that as the rules had tightened up, at the same time, because the U.S. had, uh, the um, Obama administration had decided that they were not going to leave after all, because initially the plan was to draw down to like 5,500 after one year, and then everybody out by the second year. Uh-huh. So they were preparing from General Campbell's perspective, they were deciding, like, do we close Kandahar because we need to go down to 5,000 or do we not? And as soon as they're like, we're going to keep the troops steady, we're going to keep the south, he's like, okay, well, we're actually, you know, going to keep fighting then for the south. And so these guys from being told, okay, you've got to stay, you know, quiet, just don't do anything outside of the, you know, out of the base, they're suddenly being told, okay, you have to get out there and, like, stop this place from collapsing. Right, right. They're, they're trying the to rules, turn the jobs down. They're like, we don't have enough support like, we don't to have do this. A, yeah, they didn't have, um, they didn't have the right sort of the, the, um, the lack golden of, hour and all of that. The lack of leadership uh, and the unethical, immoral positions that those soldiers were put in is just reprehensible. That And also that we could maintain that fiction so Washington, D.C. could main that fiction that the country is not falling apart, everything's okay, and so you, you're pulling troops back, you're pulling resources back, and all you're doing is putting the entire burden of all of that on, you know, 12 guys. I mean, like, these guys, I mean, one of the things that they were coming up against, for example, in Helmand, was that all of the in- intelligence history that they were supposed to be able to access had gone because they were, the U.S. was leaving, so they had no need for those computers and the guys who operated them, whatever. So they were just, they didn't have any way of, like, looking up, you know, um, the record, you know, for, like, one particular route or another. So, and they were... But because the Obama administration had decided we're staying after all, 
they were sent out to go fight while the rules were still really, really um, tight. But to, to me, and I think to everybody in Afghanistan at the time, was that it was insane to have these rules which are supposedly to help the Afghans maintain themselves when you have a very visibly deteriorating situation in Afghanistan where like the army is getting worse, the police force is getting worse, the government's getting worse. Like it's not trending better. So the, uh, this, you know, this whole fiction is just never going to work because at some point you're either going to have to send more troops or you're going to have to let somewhere fall. Right. Would, how, what was sort of the attitude uh, and the perspective of the rest of the press corps? I mean, did they sort of kind of align with you in this seeing that the U.S., the soldiers on the ground were sort of in the, being painted in these no-win situations? Or was there still sort of, well, the U.S. is waging this war on foreigners and they don't care? I mean, I think, I mean, there was really almost no press corps really in Afghanistan by that time. Okay. Because after 2014, um, all of the big uh, broadcast uh, media left. And so it was really just the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, AP and AFP um, Reuters were the only international presence and that wasn't very many people so there wasn't really so much of a press corps um i think generally i mean for journalists in afghanistan it's really hard to not see the u.s military in an incredibly negative light because of the civilian casualties and because you know when when you do these kind of operations even the marja one which was so bad for that oda but you can only imagine that when you know eventually they got the air support and they end up sort of bombing everything you know what were the repercussions there for the civilians? Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, the case in, in Kunduz, I think when you see like the reporting when you at the hospital, the hospital's been flooded with children and women and all mm -hmm. sorts of things that are happening. Because if you do drop a bomb in the middle of a heavily populated city, you might be targeting this one, but you can't see, you know, everybody else who's inside. Right. And it's really frustrating as a journalist to hear, you know, Washington say, well, you know, we're helping the Afghans stand on their own and, you know, train, advise and support. And it's just all a lie. Yeah. Uh, and so you don't have a lot of sympathy for the soldiers who are out there until you meet the soldiers and you're like, wow, like they came out to Afghanistan with very similar reasons that I did, you know, like they want to make the world a better place or, you know, maybe not in every case, but, you know, they have they're idealistic and they believe in the cause then the, many of them end, end up being quite disillusioned with what they see um yeah. but there isn't a lot of access for journalists there anyway so you they don't you don't get much chance to interact it's with them. also challenging in a place like afghanistan where the the opposition uh is driven by a religion that, that you know honors like martyrs and so if if they choose their fighting positions in in an area that that there are women and children it's a propaganda win for them when and and mm -hmm. they see it as well. These women and children just martyred, you know, they're for the cause, you know, uh, along with our soldiers, you know. Um, so it's really challenging, sort of fighting that propaganda war. I think sometimes. I think yeah. I think there's I think there's a mix. Um, I mean, a lot of times, you know, these raids that uh, that commandos and with special operations do, they go and raid the guy in his house, mm -hmm. in his village, mm -hmm. right? And they are, in the end, fighting a civil war, and they're in insurgency. And so, obviously, when you go to, like, arrest this guy, you, he's going to have his family around, or his neighbors are going to have families. There's so many, like, terrible stories of, like, Afghans who, you know, are just sitting at home, and, you know, an insurgent runs in because they're escaping a drone, and the drone sees them run into the house. They don't have any idea who's still in the house, and so they end up wiping out an entire family. 
imagine how many more insurgents you create from that. Sure. And as a journalist, you're always covering this side. This is what you hear about all of the time, and you report very little of it because it's so common. Uh, you know, thousands and thousands of civilians are killed every year, and so you only really report the extraordinary situations where maybe an international is killed or, you know, a hospital is bombed. Right. Um, but generally, there's not a lot of sympathy. The, one of the concerns that I had about the book, um, I mean, my first concern was negative re repercussions for the soldiers who were in it, whether they were still active duty or not. I was worried that for whatever reason, even though they had all been cleared, I thought, what happens if somebody gets upset and they end up getting in trouble? The other thing I was worried about was sort of Afghans saying, like, what about the Afghans? Like, this is way too sympathetic mm. to the soldiers. Right, right. Because these guys, at the end of the day, like foreign journalists, like you're in the war for a little while and then you can just leave. Whereas most of the people that you're working with are covering, they don't have the option to just eject and go, you know, any day. And, uh, you know, part of the reason I wanted to write the book was I wanted to make people see the war in a personal light and I wanted them to care. Because nobody cared, and that's why the war was able to keep going the way that it was so horribly mismanaged. And a lot of the time, the Afghan commando stories were like, you know, a million times worse. You know, they, they had like, the Afghan commanders, they'd be serving year after year. They had barely any breaks. They had no promotions, um, very little guarantee of what would happen if they got injured or what their families get, you know, they nothing. Right. Um, the number of times they'd be left out there with no air support and, like, much worse casualties right. inflicted on their units. So, you know, I mean, you have a lot of sympathy for those guys. Right. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there's not, like, a VA system or, or anything set up for them. And, and, and a lot of time there's not even, like, con enough connection to the Afghani government where the Afghani government's yeah. taking care of those guys. No, they get they have nothing. And so, you know, I was worried that people would say, you know, why are you not why are you not telling the Afghan commanders stories? Because we met so many like incredible guys. And initially I did want to have one of the commanders in, but just logistically and for the purposes of the book and the you know, the more sort of narrow message that it had to have, it didn't quite fit. Um but, you know, that was one worry that I had that I would be seen as too sympathetic to to the US military. Yeah. Yeah. What changed when uh, Trump came into office in regards to Afghanistan? What were you seeing? What were the differences with the, the Trump team coming in, the policy changes, and, and how did that affect things on the ground? I mean, you had you started out with McMaster, who, uh, who came in, and his view was that you could win the war in Afghanistan. So he convinced Trump, whose main instinct was to get out, and he hated the war so much that he had even done like a 10-minute video about how much he hated the war. Um, but anyway, he's convinced by his generals to do this mini surge and they would turn things around and then from a position of strength they would negotiate. And they basically killed this secret negotiation that was already underway during the Obama administration, which is in the book. Um, and uh, that didn't work. And so eventually McMaster was fired and um, they brought in, uh, they managed to bring in Zal, whose focus was, you know, get a deal and get us out of Afghanistan as soon as you know, as soon as possible. And so he was on a very tight deadline to negotiate this deal, and which would put the U.S. on track to leaving in a way that was responsible because President Trump, for whatever reason, he wanted to, he didn't want to, I guess, just leave Afghanistan like that, which everyone was afraid of, like, the, the tweet of doom where right, they right. he would see something on Fox News and then he'd be like, we're still there, and then, you know, uh, uh, eject, like, pick everybody out. So, um, so they ended up negotiating this deal and they were on track to, to withdraw. Um, 
So, and, and while, just to go back to your original question, why they, um, what changed, I mean, with McMaster in and with them winning the war, they had more troops, the rules of engagement were loosened quite a bit, and so there was a massive surge in airstrikes. Um, the Afghan government was very happy about it because they were getting suddenly all the air support that they needed, and they were sort of, you know, they were very optimistic, but that obviously didn't last. And you talk about uh, General Scotty Miller coming into the scene, and you know, every from what I've been told, he really took the gloves off in a lot of ways. And but you write in the book also that you know it, it's very much plays out like the uh, that film War Machine, yes. where he's just the next general coming in, stomping his boots. I'm, I'm going to turn. We're going to win this thing now. And you you write this whole thing about how he's like doing this like you know, killer PT session <laughs> with all these NATO generals and stuff. And it's, and he has this, you know, the staff of glassy eyed, mm-hmm. you know, people who, you know, they, they, it's like, they're talking about the Ayatollah in 1979. He's mm-hmm. like, Whoa, what the fuck is going on here? Cause he's not, he's not tall general Miller, is he? He's kind of like small and compact. And so I really had the vision of like, you know, um, <laughs> the, the movie war machine where he's like running along in the base and uh, yeah, he, his idea, he came in and he viewed, uh, as my, I understood it, like RS, the headquarters had, had sort of gone astray. There was alcohol, there was too much parties. There was, so he kind of put an end to the fun on the base, the salsa classes. And instead he instituted a, this killer early morning PT session, which if you've ever been to Kabul in the um, in summer, like the air is terrible. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's terrible in the winter too because of all the burning um would, uh, uh, heaters so yeah the air is really bad and I think like I did one of those sessions and I think I felt like I had smoked I don't know like two packets of <laughs> yeah. cigarettes afterwards I couldn't breathe for for a week it was a really killer PT session um, and yeah and you would have he would obviously be leading it and there'd be all these like super fit guys competing to like be the most athletic and doing all these amazing moves on the bars and then you'd have like the crusty old European generals who are like just there for like you know getting through their wine supply in the evening and just hoping the war ends soon and you know they appear and they're like in their t-shirts and then they vanish for most of the session then appear at the end you know like all sweaty (laughs) did you really do anything because I didn't see you running out there but uh yeah you had you know we're we're improving our deadlifts while the country falls the fuck apart (laughs) right yeah so yeah and you had everybody i mean it was to be fair it was quite a sort of good bonding exercise on a on a base where there were so many nationalities and jobs everybody was kind of in it together Mm -hmm. for this pt session yeah what what was your sort of impression because you you have a very i think unique view having you know you see the civilian casualties and, and what happens there. You see what the military is going through based on politics. You also know that the Afghan government wants to achieve something. Like they don't want the Taliban rolling up the towns and you know instituting sort of this you know fundamental uh, you know uh, sort of offshoot of Islamic belief or whatever. But from your perspective, did your opinions about the war, how it should be changed or waged, if we should be there at all, did all that change through your through this process for you? I mean, through the, I mean, through the writing process, I don't know. Um, I mean, just personally, it's very difficult to, uh, to look at the situation in Afghanistan now and like knowing that the U S is leaving, which they have to leave. But at the same time, um, you know, worrying about what will happen to everybody that, you know, in Kabul and everybody that you care about and the just, there's very it's very hard to see a scenario where it doesn't end at least in the near term in a horrible um civil right. war um i think for me 
I became more sympathetic to, as I said, the soldiers and to some of the decision makers, um, just a little bit, um, because I could understand what they were trying to achieve when they explained the what sounded to me like insane policies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that when I set out to write the book, and I was really angry after, you know, I lived in Afghanistan for more than uh, for over four years. Wow. Um, and like, was that year round for you, or just yeah, kind of- year round? I just lived there. Um, I had a house. We worked in the. We had like a, a house that we shared with the Washington Post, and we had our offices kind of in the in, in the garden and sort of this shed like area in the garden. And we just worked there. And you would take vacations, um, but you like we had no security. You were just there on your own. And you know, when, especially in the later years, because the embassies were so locked down. You just hang out mostly with sort of the wealthy westernized Afghan um, Afghans around and other journalists and aid workers and stuff. Um, and what was? I mean, I know you're hanging around sort of the wealthy westernized Afghans, but sort of what was their take on the whole on on not just U.S. but you know international involvement in Afghanistan in. I mean, I think it's difficult because so many of them were dependent on, I mean, and are dependent on the Western system, whether they were working in the government or whether they ran companies that were contracting to uh, the embassies, whether they were journalists working for international organizations. I mean, everybody had a stake in it. But I don't think anyone, unless they were at that moment serving in a government role, would have been optimistic or about um, right. the way things were going. And not, or even not critical about how things were run because corruption was just rampant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of the time uh, internationals were aware of it, uh, you know, and they would, I mean, there was one story that I did while, while I was at Reuters with the UN um, burying a report that they had about how horrendously corrupt the police was, that the guy that they had hired to investigate corruption was using corruption claims to get money. And they knew this, they had a report about this, and then they buried it, and they never published the report. You know, and like there was just such a huge amount of cynicism that, you know, I think everybody, everybody saw how bad things were going. Um, yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I want to uh, just remind everyone who is watching tonight or watches, you know, the recording of this. Uh, we're talking to Jessica Donati. She's the author of Eagle Down. Mm-hmm. Please make sure you go and take a look. I, I read this book. It's actually a real page turner. I sat down and think I was going to read like 10 pages of it, and like 60 pages later. I mean, it really is a fascinating uh, insight and very unique view into the war in Afghanistan that like just like reading the news and there's there are reporters writing about Afghanistan but like reading a, a small self-contained article you just don't get the kind of context and feel for the conflict that you do from reading a book like this and um please subscribe to the channel if you haven't already um we have t-shirts we have coffee mugs all these great things yeah uh, uh yeah uh, subscribe to the channel i uh, hit the like button i uh, hit the reminder the bell notification yes um also join our patreon dollar a month you we're going to I'm, I'm sure that you have some very... Um... Gordon has oh. a, uh, a question, and actually it was something else that I wanted to bring up too. He's asking if you had any exposure to anti-ISIS-K ops in late 2018. And that's the whole thing that is you know running parallel to this conversation, but intrinsically connected to it as well, is the rise of ISIS in Afghanistan. And I think that your 
probably the first writer uh, I've read who like actually understands what that is and what it isn't. Mm -hmm. And I, I would love to hear you know you expound on that. Sure. Um, well, when I the first that we heard of ISIS when we were in um, reporters in Kabul was the U.S. was leaving, and this uh, group of um, former Taliban declared that they were ISIS and. Uh, we would start to hear reports from around the country, you know, these, these uh, fighters in um, black clothing and, you know, with these scary flags had showed up. And uh, they were in such remote places, it was really difficult to verify who they actually were. Um, and, uh, of course, the government was really keen to play up the ISIS thing. And the American um, officials who were invested in keeping troops there were also keen to promote the idea that ISIS was spreading because if you looked at what was happening in Iraq and Syria... Um, you know, with ISIS taking over for the Obama administration, they were being told, well, look, the same thing could happen if you pull out in Afghanistan as planned. But just to give you an example, we decided that we would go and investigate this um, report about uh, a training camp where there had been foreigners, you know, were detected there, and it was in Farah province. And I think it was, Farah is an extremely remote province. There's nothing there, pretty much. Um, it's on the border with Iran and we managed to get out there on like one of the weekly UN flights um, because there's no way that you'd be able to drive out there and um, you know and we started trying to and, and the province was just like it ended up being a mess like you get there and you find out that the governor is not really the governor because the new governor hasn't been allowed to move in the old governor is refusing to quit and you know we ended up speaking to like all of these farmers uh, at least they told us that they were farmers who had you know their field was like near ISIS and everybody knew exactly who ISIS were. They were some group of Taliban guys that had fallen out with mm -hmm. the main group. They had rebranded as ISIS and, you know, no one had, when you actually got there, no one had ever heard anyone speaking in Arabic or in English or in French as we'd heard. Like mm -hmm. it was all just this kind of story that had been blown out of proportion by all these self-interested factions that wanted to promote the idea that ISIS was was surging in Afghanistan. And it's like that the, the world over in a lot of ways that, you know, you have a, a terrorist group and they rebrand as ISIS and it's a way to get attention, a like foreign funding mm -hmm. for your organization into a Get America to come fight you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I heard, I mean, even when I'm I mean, now working in D.C., what amazed me a couple of years ago was I heard that some guy from the DRC was in, uh, was in Washington to tell Congress about how Islamic State had, like, showed up there. Yep. And I was like, wow, like, that is kind of ambitious. But then, you know, hearing about it again a few years later, no, like, there is a rebel group there, like, you know, now much more organized about their claims to being ISIS to the point that now they're on, you know, whatever security reports go around. So, I mean, ISIS in Afghanistan, it's really difficult to know who they are and mm -hmm. what they want. Uh, they, there was a spokesman, and he was killed by a drone strike, you know, um, like, February 2015 or 16 or something and no one has heard from Islamic State since then so like no one has talked to them for five you know five years like no well he should have doesn't pay to be the spokesman who are <laughs> <laughs> well I mean no but they changed the head and you know the US military every few months they put out a, a statement saying we killed the head of ISIS in Afghanistan and people are like really like who's this guy and has anyone ever heard of him you google the name no one's ever heard of him but apparently he's a new head right um so uh, so the Islamic State ended up being this sort of group that concentrated on, on the border with Pakistan because they were disgruntled uh, Pakistani Taliban who had split off and they recruited some of the disgruntled uh, Taliban and they ended up encroaching on some of the Taliban areas. And so you had this infighting between 
Islamic State and the Taliban. You ended up having the U.S. Um, and the Afghans organize these massive operations to clear the um, to clear ISIS out of these areas. Uh, one of the things that probably people would remember was the mother of all bombs that dropped early on in the Trump mm -hmm. administration, which was seen as like you know like the Trump administration like it's on now. like it's on like it's yeah. changed. And so we went out when this bomb dropped. You know, um, we it was in an extremely remote area of Achin province. It was really difficult to get any uh, information out of it. So in the end, um, I got in a car with uh, a colleague at the Guardian and the photographer from Kunduz, and we're like, okay, let's put ourselves in disguise and we'll drive out to the site and see what's actually happening there um, to get a sense of it. And what was amazing to me at that point um, was that as we were getting there, we drove through all of these Afghan villages that had clearly been abandoned for years. And I had never seen that in Afghanistan. And that's when you're like, wow, like all the things that you hear, but until you see them, you're not sure whether to believe them, right? Because right. you hear, oh, ISIS moved in and all the terrified Afghan villagers like left and such a remote area that you would never be able to go check because, you know, that you wouldn't get the kind of resources or the investment from the paper. But because this was such a big story, the very high risk um, reporting was, you know, signed off at the highest level. So we were able to go out. And yeah, these like you could see like the the shops had like eroded and the mud huts had eroded and it was village that had been you know abandoned for years and you could see the remnants of ISIS there. So clearly, like ISIS were a real thing, uh, but what did they actually want? It was really hard to say. And when we got there to the valley where um, where this big bomb had been dropped, we just kind of drove into a group of commanders and an and an ODA who again were like, what? It what are you doing here? You know, yeah. we were like afraid that we were going to get shot. In fact, I told somebody who was at RS, I was like, you know, we're going to be driving out. And at that point we had a system where we would, we would obviously, I'd be in a burqa, the local guys would be, you know, in Afghan clothes with hats and all that thing. And it's like, we're, you know, and we're going in Corollas, you know, maybe two Corollas in case we, we at that point, I think we had three because if one broke down, you wanted a way out. And I was like, we could be, you know, we don't want to get killed in a drone strike because the Americans think we're coming to attack. So right. I told, you know, whoever I knew at RS, like, by the way, like, you know, we're going to be in the area. Please don't kill us. And we just drove into this team that was out there and they were calling in airstrikes. And it was clear that the mother of all bombs hadn't really achieved anything because they were still stuck in the same point in the valley. And they'd been told, you know, pull back bomb drop they get there and they hadn't really advanced very much yeah no I, it's interesting you mentioned like driving three cars because you look like a tactical tactical convoy with three cars oh but very to very spaced oh, out oh, oh no no not to together. an ISR no okay. no no we would be like you know one car would be like you know five ten minutes ahead oh, okay. if not All more right. so you didn't yeah. it was more a case of like as happened once to me on the road before I wisened up to planning where I went out and I was still with Reuters and we just we were driving to Nangahar towards the Pakistani border from Kabul and we drove into an ambush in the Surabi Valley um I don't know if you've, if you've been there or familiar with the geography, but it's the most incredible sort of valley with these huge cliffs, and you're down on a little road. And we were driving along in our unarmored vehicle, uh, but a police truck, a police convoy um, had stopped, and we drove past, and they didn't tell us anything, and uh, a truck sort of came by, overtook us, and then they opened fire on the truck. But we were, you know, initially we thought we were being, we were the target. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there were like these like heavy machine gun fire, like zipping down. And 
I knew, like, at that moment, I just was like, okay, we're going to die. Because there was no way. There was just a wall of fire, and it was like hail right in front of the car. And it was like, there's no way we'll live. It was just impossible. <laughs> and so the driver, Afghan driver, was, like, less resigned to his fate. And he, like, slammed the brakes, and we, like, turned around. And we had, I think, like, maybe three uh, bullets that had ricocheted from the cliff, like, in our car. And so our car broke down in the Sarobi Valley in the middle of, a, of a, like a Taliban attack. It wasn't great. And so we ended up like limping off to this local garage in the Zorobi Valley. And I'm like sitting there under my burqa, really, really scared. And the Afghan reporter, like, I remember like as the car skidded round in a halt. So then we realized that we weren't being shot at. And the poor guy got out and he like vomited <laughs> because he had like two small kids at home and nobody was going to help him out if he died. Uh, and so we're just sitting there in this garage and he's like chatting away to me in English and I'm like, no, 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 like, you know, I, I, he felt safe enough at that point, but I certainly didn't. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that experience taught me travel with more than one vehicle because if something happens to your first one, you're going to want a second one. And, and in terms of driving into like Achin, which was previously Taliban controlled and ISIS had moved in and you know, when we drove out to the valley where this bomb had been dropped, there was no word on, there was no government at all on the road, like nothing. There were no police checkpoints. We just drove up to the thing. Um, so, you know, you didn't know what you were going to encounter. We wanted, as we thought, three three vehicles was a good sort of starting number. The, one of the problems that we had was that one of our poor drivers, he um, didn't want to leave on his own, right? Because we ended up having the three you know, the three cars eventually got to where we were. We spent a few hours, like, you know, at the bottom of the hill where the ODA captain was like, you know, you guys must leave. But he was nice enough not to kick us out after all that effort we had gone to <laughs> to get there. And so the Afghans gave us a tour and showed us, you know, body parts that were in the field and where, you know, some, where one of where these different battles had taken place. Um, but so we tried to send, you know, when the drivers were like, okay, you know, now please, you know, leave. And, like, we come back and we find that he's, like, hiding because he didn't want to leave without us. And we're like, no, we're, like, in so much more danger, not just from the, an American drone strike, but, like, any, you know, Taliban or whatever watch is going to see, like, these two cars pass together. And we had also, we were also going to change car. So there'd be, like, four of us in this one, like, white car on the way in, and then we'd be spread out in different cars on the way back. So you wouldn't be able to necessarily spot a pattern of people coming and going. Right. Um, so he didn't want to leap anyway. Uh, yeah, I don't know how we got to that. So I think you know, reading your book, reading um, Wes Morgan's book, we, we had him on a, on a, on the show a while back. You know, you, the question that inevitably you have to ask yourself is just quite simply, what are we doing here? Like, what are we mm -hmm. doing? Why and why are we doing this to ourselves? Why are we putting ourselves through this if nothing else? I mean, what what were the conclusions you came to? I mean, I mean, I think the current administration has concluded, you know, there's no reason why we're doing this, so we're leaving. Um, I don't know. I think that people feel at the top that they've invested so much that they don't want to be the ones to let go. I mm -hmm. think at the very top, like, there's this, there's this warning on every president that, you know, if you leave, there could be a terrible um, attack, and then you'll be blamed for it. And really, the Afghan war is very low cost for, for the U.S., because... It's not a lot of money. Um, it's not a lot of, in terms of soldiers' lives. The public doesn't care. So um, so what's the cost? There's not people out in the streets. Right, and that's what right. often you would hear from policymakers where you're like, why? 
And they're like, well, you know, it's not like you're under pressure. Like, nobody even knows the war is going on. So for us, it's a lot less costly to just keep the war going, the status quo, and have somebody else, um, you know, take responsibility for that. Um, I, got a, I got a little irritated the other day when, uh, when the Biden administration made this announcement, like, hey, by September, we're out. And one of these guys who's former, uh, you know, senior staff at CIA, like, you know, we pay small, reasonable costs staying in Afghanistan. When you read your book about the reasonable costs, quote unquote, that some of these widows pay, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem so small or so reasonable. That was the whole reason that I wanted to write the book was because you're hearing about sustainable rate of casualties and mm-hmm. it's like, and you would hear, you know, like, oh, it's only 10 or 20 soldiers a year, so it's fine. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, it's only fine if you don't know who they are. If you're, if you're not right. paying the cost yourself, If you're not paying okay. the cost yourself, you know, but I think generally, like, they just don't even know their stories. And right. for me, it was like somebody's mother-in-law who wrote to me saying, after we had covered this whole Kunduz story about what had really happened when the city fell the second time and the team went in, um, and she wrote to me saying, you know, thanks for, um, you know, drawing attention to, the, to this story that, you know, I wish American leaders basically would consider the real costs of and of the people who are really genuinely good people really want to do good and they end up paying like this price because they're put into situations that they should never have been put in. Yeah. Um, so, so I mean, I think that if that's your takeaway, that's good because for me it was just like, how do you make people care about the war right. and about the losses? And, you know, even if it's relatively few, it's still not worth it. And, and, I mean, it's definitely gotten to the point where it's it's so political now, too, that if your president, whoever that might be, makes a decision on it, then that's the right decision. And and if that's not your, your president, like, no matter what Obama was going to say, no matter what Trump was going to say, no matter what Biden says, the people who don't like Obama, don't like Trump, don't like Biden, are, are a lot of times going to say the exact opposite, even if that flips their position from what it was, you know, eight months ago. I mean, I thought that you saw that a lot with the Trump administration when they were like, you know, we're leaving Afghanistan and the deal was like signed or whatever. Like there was so much outcry, especially in like mm-hmm. liberal voices where it's like, what, suddenly weird. you, it, suddenly it, you want the war? Yeah. You know, like I thought the war was a bad idea, but if it's Trump idea to leave it, then, right. you know, it's bad. There were articles, I mean, there were articles coming out in major publications about why feminism is why we should stay because we have to protect the women. Which like, was never, ever that was, a reason that why we never, were in Afghanistan. Right. If that's our if that's our metric, <laughs> then there are a lot of countries we need to invade. You know, so yeah, which is it, what Afghans say. I mean, if you talk to Afghans about like American policy, they're like, well, look at Saudi Arabia, right. you know, or like I remember I went to I was shadowing the Afghan president for you know a day, and uh, he had, he had this meeting planned with all of the heads of all of the ambassadors basically, and it was like him at the table with a bunch of dudes. There was only one woman there, and she was the deputy who was standing in for, like, the male UN rep that wasn't there. But all of the ambassadors were male, uh, you know, so the Afghans are hearing this message about we need to elevate women, but they see that the Americans don't do it themselves right. that much. They don't have any sort of percentage. And, uh, you know, the Saudi, like, women, especially sort of a couple of years ago, now they have a little bit more freedom with being able to drive and stuff. But, well, like, back then, right, back yeah. then, like, you know... Saudi women can't do anything. Right. So they're like, well, why does Saudi Arabia get away with it? But we don't. Right. So they just see it a lot of the times as like, you know, elements that the U.S. uses to control Afghan society. They don't really believe in it a lot of the time. Right. 
No, that's that's very interesting. I mean, I know that with with Trump, that the uh, you know a lot of the people involved with Syria were actually lying to him about the number of troops on the ground, and you know, mm. and the effects. allegedly. Um, well, I think some of them come out and admit, said admitted that they were there. There was, you know, whether you believe him or not. Fair enough. Um, but did did you find that there was, regardless of Trump or Obama or you know what's going on now with Biden? I don't know. But did you find that there was disinformation being passed up, like into the the people in Washington? Oftentimes, weren't even aware of what the ground truth was because somewhere in the middle. I mean, I don't. I mean, I don't know. I don't have a view of like the entire okay. um, snapshot of the world. But there definitely was a deliberate effort to fudge the numbers mm. from the top, where they would say, "Okay, we have you know nine thousand eight hundred troops," because the Obama administration wanted to say fewer than ten thousand, and that mm. was the entire logic right. for that number. But they would bring in troops on sort of temporary deployments, and so they would only be in the country for three months, and so they wouldn't count right. towards the the final number. Then also, you would be able to bring in you know certain air support from. Yeah, well, contractors, and so the numbers were a very squishy thing. But that was a very deliberate effort. I, I mean, I don't know if you were looking right at the top whether they would have cared as long as the numbers right. on paper stood the ground. And then you know, now and then you'd be like, hey, but we've got ten percent more people than we thought we did. And if anyone has any questions for Jessica, please get them in now. Gordon also uh, said, uh, "Yala taxi driver, uh, how much?" Okay, so. How much for a giraffe on the black market? What do you think a giraffe goes for on the black market? In, in your worldly travels, if, if you had ever wanted to procure a giraffe. A giraffe? Yes. Uh, where? I mean, is it a country where there's a lot of giraffes? Um, I would imagine, I mean, in Afghanistan, you could get probably anything for not a lot of money. Yeah. I, mean, I remember doing one interview in Kars district of Kandahar. And, uh, you know, sitting there interviewing this um, Afghan warlord or official depending on how you look right, at it right. and like you're sitting there and then this lion like you hear a lion's roar and i'm sitting there and like <laughs> 20 meters away there's a lion you know with a big yeah. mane and it's roaring and i'm like am i imagining this and like b am i going to be eaten by a lion is this how i'm going to die in afghanistan because like that's not fun at all and he had like a whole exotic zoo um, because having exotic pets was a, was a thing of influence. Like a so status. I would think getting a giraffe there is probably, you know, if you can get a lion, you could probably get a giraffe too. But the, I don't know. There you go. Um, and a, Gordon also said, uh, enjoying the stream from a hotel in quarantine. He's uh, traveling from his job in the Middle East to back home. And so he, he's Australian. So they make you hide out in a hotel for like three weeks or something before you're allowed to go back to your wherever you live sounds fun well um oh okay here we go uh ellison says do you or spec ops guys know about the russian bounties before the world did okay so the, oh, the, that whole subject uh, about the russian bounties what, what do you go on about that what do you got what do you got well um Russian bounties. So I was on maternity leave when that story broke, and like really early on. And I was getting calls um, saying, you know, I know you're on maternity leave, but can you help with this story? Because, and just hearing the outline of it, it seemed to me impossible. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought it was huge. I mean, it had to be hyped up because the number of times that in Afghanistan you would hear about Russian bounties and Russian this and Russian that, and you would get 
really specific information like this guy gave this much to this commander to do this in exchange for this bridge and that you could really pin it down but at the end of the day like the plausible deniability from the russian side was it really you know was it a russian government person or was it a russian contractor did they really have you know it was just really never enough to put as a as a story so when they came out saying you know russians have paid this much for this troops it just seemed to me to be really far-fetched, um, especially knowing um, often how limited the information that the government did have on what was going and, on. And now that they've also released information saying that they're, uh, the, on the, the uh, presidential daily brief, they rated it from low to moderate. Yes, which and is in Afghanistan, you know, <laughs> that's not a good level of confidence to what have. Low basically means, you know, it's like a rumor. And uh, I, I thought, uh -uh, I'll be just co totally honest here. Uh, I think Michael Morell speaking mm -hmm. to the New York Times and saying low to moderate means that analysts agree that the assessment is right. They just disagree with the sourcing of the information may not be great. And those are some weasel words yeah, you're using yeah. right there. Yeah. I, yeah, I found the story, I mean, um, I mean, I could be wrong, but just the amount of, of times that we've tried to investigate this stuff and that you hear about it and that you hear about it from people in Afghanistan yeah. who are also all looking at it. You never heard anything really plausible, like really 100% solid. And so the way it was kind of, and then it became obviously every story about Russia was like, by the way, are we not going to sanction Russia for these bounties? Right, right. Um, yeah. There, there's definitely that uh, hysteria around it. And um, again, I mean, the politics, sort of what you were referencing earlier, Dave, I mean, when Trump was in office, this Russian bounties thing was a huge scandal. When Biden comes in and he announces we're pulling out of Afghanistan, suddenly the Daily Beast runs this huge like feature piece about, actually, that whole report was nonsense. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And it's like, I can see what you're doing here, guys. I can see what you're doing. Like, it's not funny anymore. Like, there's too many, there's too, the stakes are too high to be playing these stupid games. There was another one where, um, like, two weeks before the Obama administration announced that they weren't going to leave Afghanistan after all, the uh, U.S. military announced that they had found the biggest al-Qaeda camp ever <laughs> in Afghanistan. And they had found it in Kandahar and, uh, you know... It, it was that, and, and they put out a press release, which only the Washington Post picked up, um, and they did like a story basically based off that one press release saying U.S. found nobody else and in Afghanistan. We're like, that doesn't seem right, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's and, it's yeah. interesting these scenarios that you're talking like way out in the hinterlands of Afghanistan, especially in the Syrian civil war, especially early on. It was like a black hole that the entire Western world projected their own fears and insecurities into. And still do. I mean, now yeah. the discussion is if the U.S. leaves Afghanistan, what is China going to do? What's Russia going to do? And, you know, or if we stay, what does it look like? You know, I mean, it's it, that was the thing about Afghanistan that was fascinating early on was that it was such a world stage where all these different players and powers were involved. Here's a good question from uh, Jim. He asks, does she think Afghanistan will be significantly different in 2024 than it was in 1994? Has anything changed long term? Uh, I mean, it's hard to say. Uh, I mean, this is the question of what the Taliban, have they really changed? Uh, and what they actually want when mm -hmm. they think of themselves as putting together a state. I mean, one of the things that you don't really see in the media about Afghanistan, which you don't write because you don't want to invite attacks on westernized sort of areas, but in Kabul there's... Um, there's like an entire sort of shopping district where there's like cafes which are a bit like Starbucks and there's men and women like hanging out, 
you know, together, which in most parts of Afghanistan is insane because if you go into like any Afghan restaurant, you know, there's like a men's area and then upstairs or at the back behind a curtain, you have the family area where the women are. You'd never see them from the street. And yet here you have men and women sitting together ordering like a cappuccino or something. And there's loads of these places. There's, um, you know, there's a nightclub that um, that my um, former colleague runs, you know, and it's all Afghans there. So has it changed? I mean, it's changed a lot in, in cities, uh, whether it's Kabul or, um, or places in the north. So, but whether that can survive the Taliban coming in, I think it's pretty unlikely um, mm. if, they do, mm. if they do come to power. And even if they don't and they end up sort of take controlling parts of the south and maybe around Kabul, like the amount of conflict and insecurity probably is going to cause these places to have to close and their patrons are going to leave and they could come under under attack. So, but I mean, the Taliban say that they have changed. Uh, and, you know, in some Taliban areas, when you go, people are allowed to watch TV, um, you know, the girls go to school in some of those areas. Um, maybe not like university, but, you know, there's high schools open, um, very limited. But so, I mean, I think the chances are, no, they have not changed that much. And no, like nothing of this would survive if the Taliban were in control. Right. But for the average, average Afghan, uh, not talking about like, you know, the westernized, wealthier, educated group, but the average Afghan probably just cares for peace. And if you ask, you know, if you're sitting like <clears throat> I was in a polling center in Kandahar June, uh, the 2014 election and you just asked you know people coming in what do you want and the answer was always the same like we just want an end to the fighting we want peace and then you know they'd be they'd tell you which particular family member they had lost when or how many sons they had lost you know it was like it was very sad and nobody really cared who won the election they just wanted to be left alone right, right. And, and it's challenging too because i mean i remember like when it first kicked off and talking to a lot of the afghan and the afghan americans who had left, you know, like life under the Taliban was horrible with the vice and virtue patrols and, and, you know, just. And so you go from this, we didn't live with this and we want this, which is completely understandable. I mean, nobody, you know, their life is chaos a lot of times. And then the alternative is potentially Taliban rule, mm -hmm. which for a lot of them who don't remember whatever what that was like. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very complicated situation. I mean, it depends also on the area because there's a lot of like Pashtun rural areas in the south and southeast uh, where, you know, life hasn't changed much before, during, after the Taliban. Like, it's, I mean, right. the Taliban approach and their whole, like, it comes from something native, which is the Pashtun tribal code, where right. women are not allowed to go out in a book, and it's nothing to do with the Taliban, it's just local custom. Right. And a lot of those things are just native. So it's in the cities where the Taliban rule is so horrifying because it's this kind of the countryside basically coming in and telling you how to live your life. But mm -hmm. For people in the in those areas, they look at the way the cities are run and they're horrified because it's so immoral. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have like a real um, like ideological divide as well um, as you do. I mean, to a certain extent, in any country between you know the city and the countryside, but in Afghanistan, it's just very very polarized. Also, because of the amount of foreign aid and influence that has poured into the cities, not so much to the um, countryside. Before you went to Afghanistan your first time, how much did you know about Afghanistan, about the current situation, the history of it? 
embarrassingly little. I mean, as I said, like, for me, like, the first thing was when Reuters were like, well, you know, we actually could use some help in Afghanistan. I mean, to me, first of all, it was like the war still going on there because I had, you know, heard about Iraq and that kind of filtered through. But, I mean, I grew up in, I was in Italy when the war broke out. Uh, it was, you know, it was very, very, like, remote. It wasn't much in the news, and the Iraq war was to a certain extent, but Afghanistan wasn't, and it just seemed very, very far away. Mm -hmm. um, as, obviously, as soon as I was told that I was going to go out there, I then read, you know, everything that I could, uh, whether it was, um, you know, books or government reports, cigar reports, which are much hated by everybody. Oh, I love but, them. <laughs> which journalists quite enjoy, and they were really, really good um, back in the day at the beginning when they had just when they had just sort of started to get, um, you know, uh, sort of spicy. And so, you know, I read everything and, and you know, you learn a lot about it in practice, but then also just living there. And, you know, it was amazing that you could be living, you could have lived there for, you know, four or five years and you would still, you know, be missing like very basic customs where you're like, oh my God, all this time I've been like committing this like offense by like sitting in the wrong place around, you know, I mean, there were just so many of them or that, you know, these words that you hadn't fully understood the expression. It's obviously so, I mean, a lot of the experience that you get is only by living there. Mm -hmm. What are some things that you feel that uh, the media in general, and, and I'm just going to say the media, because there are always going to be dissenting voices, but got right, got wrong about Afghanistan. I mean, was there a lot of misreporting or was most of what you saw accurate? I mean, I... I mean, generally, I feel that the media has done a really bad job of covering just especially the latter years of the war, which I've followed. Um, we've just not been very good at telling what American, the American military has really been doing, um, like how flawed the whole like war effort is, why it has gone so badly, which I think is what you see in the book, where you see like the reality on the ground for the soldiers day to day, and then the policy making in Washington and how it's completely divorced and... Um, you know, and I, and I think that even myself as a journalist, we could never cover that because we didn't have any access and the access that you did have, the guys would like never let you do write about it in a, in a news story. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, and there's a lot of oversimplification, um, in the media. I mean, people, there's often, you know, like the Taliban are going to come and bring darkness to like all of Afghanistan when, Half of Afghanistan, like, actually agrees with, you know, mm -hmm. that even if we find it abhorrent in the West, like, there's a lot of places in Afghanistan that don't. And um, I think there's a lot of oversimplification that way. But generally, I just think not done a good job, not done a good job of portraying the motives that, that American leaders have had for wanting to remain engaged. And what about, uh, I know we've, you, you're the, your book probably focuses mostly on the United Space, Special Forces. But what about foreign troops? Are they still active there? Are foreign governments still active? Do they receive the same type of scrutiny in their operations? I mean, the Australians have come under quite a lot of scrutiny for right. these special operations, things that happened in the past. Mm -hmm. um, and definitely on a lot of the um, missions, like, for example, the Kunduz, Kunduz mission, they had British advisors with them and they had Romanians. So I've often wondered, you know, like, you know, these poor American soldiers that nobody cares about. What about the Romanian soldiers who were, like, there through the same battles and, like, really nobody cares about right. those guys? And, right. you know, I don't doubt the Romanian, anyone in Romania knows that Romanian soldiers are there. Um, so, I mean, yeah, they are, they are level. But generally, I mean, the U.S. is the main player. Um, they're the ones who really decide the rules. Their decisions in D.C., you know, condition the war, you know, determine life or death on a huge scale. Um, 
from there, which is which is very obvious, and no other country really has a stake in it, and which is very obvious now when the U.S. is leaving and they're like in together, out together. Well, that was not true because, you know, for four years previously, everyone was worried that Trump would just eject and then you know that would be it. Uh, and even now, like the Americans are leaving, they have planned to be out on July fourth, and apparently the Europeans are like, well, hang on, we can't get out by July fourth. We need more time. So can you please wait so that we're not like abandoned here? Uh, pretty much. And so, I mean, the U.S. is the main player in town. Uh, anything Absolutely. else that, you know, we've we've covered a lot here, I think, in this interview. Is there anything else that you wanted to bring up that you didn't have the chance to? No, no, nothing. I just thanks for having me here. Yeah. I'm really glad to had a chance to talk to you. Likewise. Thank you for coming in studio and doing this tonight. And thanks for writing the book. And again, the book is Eagle Down. Uh, find it on Amazon. Is there an audio book? People always want to know. Is there? An, there is an audio. There's an book. audio book. They can get it on Kindle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. On Kindle. yeah. Foreign language editions. Is it in Polish yet? People no. want. People always ask. <laughs> um, Isaac's asking, "What is or might be China and Russia's plan?" Mm. And yeah. Um, Russia, I think, probably very worried. I mean, probably both of them, Russia and China, very worried that Afghanistan is going to collapse because as much as they want the U.S. to look bad and fail in Afghanistan, they also do not have an interest in chaos um, because China shares a border um, with Afghanistan and they're very worried about the um, Muslim uh, Mm -hmm. separatists and activists being trained in Afghanistan, um, and obviously the Russians don't want it spilling over into Central Asia. Um, in fact, you saw that like it was one of, especially earlier on, more in the Obama administration, for, for the U.S. and Russia and China, they were cooperating on a lot of things with Afghanistan because they all broadly had the same interest, was, you know, not total chaos. Did, did you, because you were there later... Like, I left in 2010, and things were still, you know, what they were. But because you were there later, did you see a lot of Chinese involvement, like investment? Were they trying to build the infrastructure there? I mean, they they were, but they were encountering a lot of problems by the time that I was sort of around. I mean, they had bought, um, they had invested the biggest, into the biggest copper mine. Um, The Indian had some conglomerates into the biggest iron mine. But basically, they had invested a lot. Uh, none of it was going well. Um, they were encountering the same problems that um, any American uh, contractor who was trying to do business there, which was kind of corruption. And if you didn't have the agreement of everybody locally, you would have a lot of local insurgents. And so the mines would, would be get, would be rocketed. Um, they they just had a lot of infrastructure problems. So they never really got off the ground. Um, you know, they had this big oil project, oil and gas project in the north, and that never went anywhere. Um, so I, I think that that was probably, I mean, China did see an opportunity, maybe as they also invest a lot in Africa and other nations, but they didn't get very far. Yeah. How much do you, how much do you think that you, for United States policy in, in, you know, in particular, do, do we get it wrong? Because we don't understand a place like Afghanistan where it's so family, village, tribal-based, you know, the whole idea of a national identity is very hard to push in some of those areas. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that you just can't build a country in your own image. And obviously, I mean, every country has taken, it has its own, like, specific history and evolution. And you can't come from the U.S. into Afghanistan, which is an extremely complicated country that has, you know, 
thousands of years of history and decide, okay, this is how you're going to do your, you know, your judicial system. This is how we're going to bring in, you know, 25 year old lawyers to tell you how to do when they have, you know, ancient, ancient sort of practices and, and systems for dealing with, with disputes. Right. You know, and to me, like one of the things that was mind blowing was that the Italians were put in charge of the justice system. And like being from Italy, I can say this, the Italian justice system does not do well. And so <laughs> you brought them in to like build the Afghans justice system. It blew my mind. Yeah. That's amazing. It, it must, I mean, it must've been fascinating for you because I, I mean, you had insight that neither Jack nor I had, you yeah. know, because you were seeing so many different, elements and you know getting so many different perspectives yeah all right guys so next episode we're going to have a guy who is army counterintelligence on talking about um you know looking ferreting out spies around u.s military bases he spent some time in afghanistan too but anyway we'll get into it with him then uh and then the next four episodes after that going into the summer here is uh, some people returning to the show. Mike Edwards on the 28th is going, uh, he was in the uh, Regimental Reconnaissance Company. Then Caleb Phillips on June 4th, he was uh, my friend from 5th Special Forces Group. Talk about his time in SF. On the 11th, Mark Polymeropoulos, uh, CIA, he's coming on for a second time. June 18th, Danny Colson, who's a FBI HRT founder, he's going to come on. We are going to talk about uh, Ruby Wake, Bridge. Wake Wake Ruby Bridge. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be part two for Danny. Well, yep. part two for all these guys, but yeah. And then that leads into June 25th, uh, our big episode 100th party. And we have a bunch of people laid on coming, Debauchery. coming in studio. Um, so that'll be fun. Yeah. Um, so I think if you guys are back in New York for that time, you'll have to come in and thank you. And, and we'll bring the baby. Yeah. <laughs> Rum. Rum for babies. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you, and we'll see you on uh, Friday. Oh, also our Instagram uh, at the team house or they dot team dot house. Make sure you join us there. Oh, too, actually, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, Dave, because I, I wanted to give a shout out to. Um, a veteran, small veteran-owned business. They're not a sponsor or anything, but the Omega Project. It's the dash Omega Project dot com, and they're uh, they make journals for your like personal training and, and your nutrition and sleep, and it like helps you track everything. It's a it's a like a personal journal um, instead of just having a blank notebook. And I just want to give them a shout out because they're uh, you know soft veterans running a small business like ours. Jessica, what? Thank you so much for your time. First off, but. With everything you've done and everything you've learned, is do you have another book in the works? Is there something? Do you have like your next project on the horizon? No, not yet. No, I mean, I, I think maybe initially I said I would never write another book um, <laughs> because it's just a really difficult soul destroying process. But now I, I think something kind of leading on from from that, maybe like you know taking some of the stories forward. But I don't know yet. What? I, just out of curiosity, I know we need to end, but what what was in particular about this book, well, what did you feel was soul-crushing? Um, I mean, it's just, it's like quite a long, lonely process writing the writing, and, uh, you know, nothing you write is ever uh, ever as good as you want it to be. Somebody told me books are, are never finished, they're abandoned, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of how it feels. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stories. I wanted to tell a lot more stories in it than, than I did, um, as I mentioned uh, and then obviously promotion, as you know, is like super difficult and miserable and you're just trying to promote yourself and that's kind of embarrassing. So Yeah. Um, Publishing is a harsh mistress. It's really, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And 
Uh, was there ever a point in time, whether it was with U.S., whether it was with the soldiers themselves or family members or even Afghanis, that you felt like you were picking up a shield, like that you were, that you felt that like somebody, like somebody has to feel to tell the story. I felt that with the with a lot of the soldier stories, where I felt like a responsibility because a lot of those stories had never been, you know, had never been told before, and they were putting a lot of trust. Um, you know, in telling the story, you know, faithfully. And even if you don't want to make, you know, even if you're really trying to do your best, you could still, you know, make a bad mistake or, you know, upset somebody uh, or be insensitive or miss something. And so um, I felt a lot of responsibility. And I really hope that I did the stories justice and that at least most of them felt like I did. All right. Uh, I think that's an episode. Thank it'll, you. Yeah, Thank you. Down. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.